Hello and welcome to Pairing, a podcast where we pair wine with art and pop culture. I am your host, Emma Scherzarko, and I am very excited for this episode all about the great Sherlock Holmes with the greater Sarah Golub of Arden. It was such a treat to talk with Sarah extensively about these stories and these iconic characters and get her insights and criticisms, so I think you're all really going to enjoy this one. You may have noticed that this episode is a bit longer than our normal episodes, and while I did consider splitting this one into two episodes, because it's coming out a week late, I thought I'd give you more to enjoy. I apologize for the delay in the schedule, but... Between a last-minute change and my lack of planning, I had to move around our episode schedule a little bit, but wasn't able to edit this one to my satisfaction in time to release it last week. So, assuming all goes well, we'll be back to business as usual next week. Thank you so much for your understanding, and hopefully this episode will make up for the wait. There are very minimal spoilers in this one, so I really think it's safe for you to listen to unless you really want to know absolutely nothing about Sherlock Holmes, either the stories or the adaptations. I will say slight content warning for discussion of drug use and racism, so please listen at your discretion. Thank you so much to all of our patrons, and especially to our producer-level patrons, Emma Cohen, Rena Sarame, Zoo Yorker, Caitlin Van Horn, and Michael Beck, all of whom could solve a mystery as deftly as Sherlock Holmes. If you would like to join these spectacular sleuths, come check us out at patreon.com slash pairingpodcast, where you can pledge as little as $1 a month and get access to all sorts of extras. Before we dive in, I just wanted to apologize because I've definitely been slacking on the pairing Instagram, and I truly apologize about that. But I will say that we have a special pairing Instagram takeover happening later today if you're listening on the episode release day, so keep an eye out for that. Without further ado, here is episode 78, Sherlock Holmes with Sarah Golub. I am so excited to welcome to pairing one of the great writers in the podcasting sphere, Sarah Golub of Arden. Sarah, welcome. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Um, Absolutely. I'm so excited that we're going to be doing this. And speaking of Arden, which is a mystery podcast, um, amongst amongst other things, um, we're going to be talking about some other mysteries that you are interested in. Namely, the great Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, we are talking about Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well, you were you were just telling me, Sarah, that Arden is like the least mysterious mystery things that you're into, <laughs> which I I think is amazing, um, and that you are pretty much an expert on Sherlock Holmes at this point. Which uh, uh, yes, <laughs> yes, which is which is awesome. Um, I'm super excited because I, I would call myself like a like a casual Sherlock Holmes fan. Like I I remember I remember reading some of it when I was a little kid, like probably like a little, tried I tried to read it like a little too young, I think. And then and then I I read a bunch of it in like my high school English classes and got back into it. But I've never read like I haven't read all of the stories or anything like that, um, but it sounds like you have probably read everything or most of everything. So um, how did you first get into Sherlock Holmes? 
Um, I think I got really into it, uh, either like late middle school, early high school, and I, mm-hmm. a friend got me into it, but I'm not sure if it was she got me into it and then I watched House and then I got really, really into it, or if I she recommended it to me because I got really into House. But the fact that uh, the Fox show House MD starring Hugh Laurie is like very loosely based on Sherlock Holmes definitely got me very interested in kind of getting getting more of it because I was obsessed with that show and it was like oh okay get more of this character more of a friendship that is similar to House and Wilson totally. just uh needed to scratch that itch and I uh I fell in love with the stories I read half of them and then I kind of gave up because there is a lot. Uh- <laughs> there are a lot, yeah. By the way, I just wanted to say that blew my mind. You posted something on Twitter the other day about, like, Wilson being the Watson to House and Sherlock. <laughs> that blew my mind because I, I love House, but I'd never watched it, like, thinking about it in terms of Sherlock Holmes. And then I was like, oh, my God, that's totally what it is. <laughs> it's a very loose adaptation. But sure, it- sure. But it, but there, but, but yeah, that relationship is really the where you see it the most. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. So yeah, so you said you read about half the stories, and then but yeah, I sort of fell off of them. Um, and then I I really loved uh, Elementary, the CBS series starring uh, Johnny mm-hmm. Lee Miller and Lucy Liu. Uh, they're fantastic. Mm-hmm. They ran for seven seasons, and that uh, and when that show ended, I was like. Well, now there's no more elementary. Uh, Mm -hmm. And that had been like, you know, 22 episodes a year for seven years. Right, right. Let's get back on my Sherlock Holmes bullshit. And I uh, reread the series. And then um, I probably would have developed some sort of new interests or hobbies or personal life. Except (laughs) a pandemic hit. So I just, I doubled down on my doubling down. And uh, it's, I've reread it a few times now. There are a few Amazing. stories I skip every time because, like, come on. But, like, sure, I think sure. it just, if you added up the numbers of stories I've read and how many times I've read them, it cumulatively is reading the whole series a few times. <laughs> sure, sure. No, I, that makes that makes total sense. That makes total sense. There's definitely, the, I mean, there's so much to reread, at, like, every single story would be would be a lot but but some of them are just so good and so iconic. You sent me like your your ideal Sherlock Holmes starter pack. So like if somebody is totally unfamiliar with Sherlock Holmes, which at this point I'm not sure how you could be totally unfamiliar with Sherlock Holmes, but 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 if you are or if you just haven't gotten that into it, um you have suggested some stories that are that are a good way to start. Um, so maybe we can we can start by talking about some of those. Yeah, definitely. And it, I think, because it's such a popular character, it almost like is very common for people to feel like they they have a gist of it and they kind of don't need to read the stories. If that makes sense, like right, they'll see a movie or they'll see a TV show and they'll kind of be like, yeah, that's that's it. And I mean, not yeah. that like you have to, uh, because it's definitely right. Like, not everyone necessarily cares what some sort of 18th century white dude had to say about yeah. stuff. <laughs> Very fair and valid. Uh, it's not like they're like going to make you rethink your whole life, but uh, right, they're they're good. And I also um, yeah. 
very coincidentally, uh, Stephen Fry has narrated uh, the entire Harry Potter series and has also narrated the entire Sherlock Holmes collection. Oh so my you God. can actually, with the same voice actors, see how they compare. And Sherlock Holmes is half the length of the Harry Potter series. Yeah, there you uh, go. <laughs> so I think uh, while it seems intimidating... Lots of people have read the Harry Potter series more than once, so absolutely. As it's it's not as big of a buy-in as you think. Uh, <laughs> I, I also I bet I I'm gonna have to get all the Stephen Fry Sherlock Holmes audiobooks because I love him, and he he makes an appearance in uh, at least one adaptation of Sherlock Holmes that I can think of, but. I can think of it because I just watched it the other night, <laughs> <laughs> which is the second Robert Downey Jr. Sherlock Holmes or or Guy Ritchie Sherlock Holmes, whichever you prefer. Um, a Game of Shadows. He plays Mycroft. Delightful. Loves yeah, he's Stephen. A, he's loves a bit Stephen of an Fry. expert. <laughs> yeah, he, absolutely. He wrote a, uh, a Sherlock Holmes Christmas pastiche, which is quite oh. fun. Oh. Because I shouted out the Stephen Fry audiobooks, I'd also like to shout out the Simon Vance audiobooks, which are <gasps> the ones that I have. And they're also, um, I think he just adds a really great um, humor I love Simon and Vance. emotion to the uh, the readings. We're, we're podcast people. We appreciate a good voice acting. <laughs> Absolutely. It makes such a, such a huge difference. And since I've started dabbling in narration myself, just like, can really appreciate a good narrator or like and also like the right narrator for the right story if that if that makes sense i imagine both stephen fry and simon vance are perfect in very different ways and it's uh it's so important especially with the sherlock holmes stories because everyone is there for sherlock holmes uh so you got to get that sherlock holmes voice right but right watson's the narrator so you got to get that watson voice right and Absolutely. They're, they're quite distinct and also like to have chemistry with yourself, uh, no, no easy feat. <laughs> no easy feat, right? <laughs> yes. Let's. Uh, if you are interested in testing out the waters on Sherlock Holmes, uh, here yes. are five stories that I think are a good place to start. Yeah, I really would recommend skipping the first two novels, uh, uh-huh. A Study in Scarlet and The Sign of Four. Uh-huh. I have a great appreciation for these, and I have reread them multiple times, but. I think what's interesting about them is sort of seeing how the characters get to where they are in the stories. And it's much more about character notes. Um, The mysteries themselves in those books are like pretty weird. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. They they definitely are. Yeah. I at least, I at least remember a study in Scarlet, at least in broad strokes. Oh yeah. A study in Scarlet uh, takes half the book to just tell you about this like, a Mormon mafia cult that's going on in uh, Utah for no reason um, doesn't connect to. I mean, like it's the background motivation of the main villain in that story, but it's right. like not really tied to like what he does or how yeah. he was able to outsmart the police or any like special skill. It's just. Arthur Conan Doyle wanted to write a Western. He wanted to write a detective series. He just, he didn't know that this was going to become a huge thing. (laughs) Right. So he didn't, he didn't quite, he didn't quite pick one. He tried to do a little bit of both and then, and then fate chose for him (laughs) what was going to continue. I I often think about the alternate universe where for some reason that like Mormon mafia, like cowboy vengeful character 
uh-huh. became the huge hit character yeah. that had, like, 60 stories. Yeah. <laughs> what a different world uh, really, we'd be living in. <laughs> yeah. A real flip of the coin on that one. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I think, I think I'm glad it went the way it did. You know? Yeah. I, I think we're better for it. Uh, in an alternate timeline, in the darker timeline. It's the the Mormon mafia. <laughs> uh, yeah, I get asked a lot, sort of just uh, the stories are good, and like because I'm I'm always tweeting about them, and people are like, well, "What's up with that? Are these yeah. <laughs> are these anything?" So here are five stories that I think are legitimately good crime mystery stories. Awesome. Two of them aren't like even really mysteries; they're just kind of like crime adventures things. <laughs> nice, nice. I made a top five uh, sort of starter pack of a good place to start if you. Want to read just like good crime mystery stories and also that I think give you a really good sense of the characters and the relationship between Holmes and Watson. Just like you get kind of full package stories. Which is which is really like the crux of of Sherlock Holmes, I think. The the relationship between Holmes and Watson is is worth the price of admission for me. Yeah. There are two stories uh where they don't really interact because mm-hmm. Holmes tries to write mysteries himself uh, where Watson wasn't there so Watson can't write about it and uh, right. the blanched soldier mm-hmm. and the lion's mane and mm. they're like they're fun to read for, to see Holmes's point of view but like they're <laughs> really bad mysteries. They're just he not, has, not as good. <laughs> Holmes ha- himself has no sense of what a good mystery is because they're both just sort of like and then I looked in a science textbook and that told me what happened. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting, though, just like from a from like a writing standpoint that I mean, obviously, Arthur Conan Doyle knows how to write a good mystery because he he did it a bunch. But to, like but to flip the perspective and him being aware of flipping the perspective of the narrator and when Holmes is narrating, it's just not. It's just not as good because you can you can see his thought process. <laughs> yeah, I I believe Arthur Conan Doyle himself thinks that the Lion's Mane is. I think he like put it in his top ten or something. Mm. And I I strongly strongly disagree. disagree. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I love it. I love it. Um, it's it's truly just he saw a weird animal once. That's the whole <laughs> thing. <laughs> that's the that's the whole that's the the twist. <laughs> We are really we are building up anticipation for these. I know, I know. Okay. People are going to be like, "What are the be stories? The <laughs> what are the top five? Oh my god!" And I have, uh, I have uh, prepared some starter pack wines to potentially pair with these stories. But I'm, I'm familiar. I'm fairly familiar with two of them. Sort of familiar with a couple others, and then, um, and then I think the last one I'm just not familiar with at all. So I'm excited to to talk about them with you. Fantastic. Okay. So all right, for real now. Yes. Top five uh, Sherlock Holmes stories that I think would be really good introductions to a new reader. Uh, you don't need to read all five of these to get in, but you can jump in at any point. Awesome. Okay. Um, a scandal in Bohemia. Uh, this is the first short story about Sherlock Holmes, so it is very much written to give you a sense of the introduction. Uh, it even has, like, Watson visits Holmes, and Holmes does a rudimentary deduction about him before the actual story starts, just it's to really fun. introduce you to the process. Um, 
Yeah. It is also the one that introduces and the only one that features yeah. <laughs> Irene Adler, who is a great character and shows up in almost every Sherlock Holmes adaptation. She's uh, she does. very iconic. Yeah. <laughs> it's very I didn't realize that this was the only story she was in. I figured I figured she must show up again, but no. And she's great. And I I think if no other story if you are familiar with Sherlock Holmes adaptations and like them well enough, but like don't really feel like reading them, mm-hmm. I would still really suggest A Scandal in Bohemia if you were to read just one as a fan. It should be that one because every single adaptation of A Scandal in Bohemia, besides the Jeremy Brett Sherlock Holmes and the Wishbone Sherlock Holmes, <laughs> besides those two... Every other one of them really does Irene Adler dirty because mm, mm-hmm. a lot of people who write media are <laughs> heterosexual men. And they just don't understand that a woman could be smart and interesting and not also be attracted to the character that they relate to. It just doesn't make right. sense to them. Right, uh, right. <laughs> so there are so many versions of Irene Adler where she has something going on with Sherlock Holmes. And mm-hmm. I get that instinct that she's sort of the only woman in the series that like really is a match for him. But what's right. so great about A Scandal in Bohemia is that it is about Sherlock Holmes sticking his nose where it doesn't belong and being outsmarted by a woman who is completely unimpressed by him. He's yeah. he tries he goes in so confident that he can outsmart her that he doesn't even realize that she's bamboozled him until it's too late. She she marries someone else in the story. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> she's very happy with her new husband. There's no indication of a romantic interest, so I think if for no other reason than just to get the set the record straight. You should read a scandal in Bohemia. <laughs> well, how I just don't understand how a man could see a woman as an equal, but have her not be attracted to him. I just don't understand how that could work. Right? Yeah, because it's like. <laughs> but I think Sherlock Holmes is cool, and so obviously everyone right. else should think that he's as cool as I think he is, because otherwise that might in some way affect my personal view of myself in the world. Right, uh, right, right. <laughs> yeah, yep. There's a lot. There's a lot of that. There's definitely a lot of that. He also no interest in her. The Watson is incredibly clear on the fact that, uh, like, he says outright, like. It is not that Sherlock Holmes is interested in her romantically. He just respected her opinion. And I think a lot of men also have a little trouble with that. This yeah. idea that a man could respect a woman yeah, uh, and without not... secretly having a crush on her. Yeah. <laughs> just just wild. Just wild, these <laughs> these hot takes that you have, Sarah. <laughs> I know. And it's, it's just, uh, it's embarrassing because it's like, that is still happening. Like, those were happening in the uh, early... 2010s, I think, were like Robert Downey Jr., Holmes, and BBC Sherlock, and uh, Elementary, like kind of all in a few years of each other, had a romantic interest version of Irene Adler, which is like, it's just not in the text, so it is kind of frustrating. Like, I I, I wouldn't mind it if it happened like once in a while, but it's just, it's so prevalent. The fact Uh, that it happens in every single one of them. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. And she does. She gets done extra dirty in the Robert Downey Jr. ones, I think, because then she's kind of just fridged at the beginning of the second movie. 
Yeah. <laughs> I just decided that that's not real. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I I think it might not be real. Let's just let's just say that. Well, just while just while you're talking about that, um, I'm just gonna go ahead and and pair one of my top five like starter pack wines with that one because I picked like five five different wines that if you've never if you've never gotten into wine before that I think will like get you excited about wine and they might not all do that but but w- at least one of these I think will and for uh for a scandal in bohemia I want to give it uh even though it makes me feel like I should pair a wine that's closer to bohemia but Eh, we're just going to ignore that. Um, um, but I'm going to give it Chianti because Chianti is one of my favorite, absolute favorite wines. It's a red wine from Italy. And I think it's it's a classic in the way that I think A Scandal in Bohemia is a classic for Sherlock Holmes. And like you said, like it it introduces like the story introduces so many of the like fundamentals of Sherlock Holmes like you get to see his deductive process and all that but it's also so fun because it's one where he does get outsmarted and so for me Chianti I feel like is a good one I also feel like Chianti is a good wine for Irene Adler because she's she's feisty and kind of spicy and and uh, Chianti is a wine that has like higher acidity to it so it's a little bit fresher for a red wine um so yeah so that's my that's my my pairing for for a scandal in bohemia i irene adler was an opera singer so Yay. i'm sure that she must have sung some italian operas she i mean you can't have. avoid it <laughs> exactly exactly and she probably has a glass of chianti after every show exactly <laughs> thank you see totally totally worked yeah. we'll bring it around we'll bring it around yeah exactly second story that i think um really great introduction mm-hmm. um the Adventure of the Speckled Band. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a classic. I believe this is technically the first one I read because I think this was like in a middle school book of like just general famous short stories that sure. we had in English class. Uh, it's a lot of people's first introduction and I think it's uh, it's really solid. It's got this great gothic horror energy to it. Mm-hmm. And um, because the case is so scary and dark... Mm-hmm. Uh, Arthur Conan Doyle was uh, smart to include a lot of um, humor on the side of Holmes and Watson. It's uh, awesome. It's one of the earliest cases in their partnership, and you can see that they're like that they're friends, that they get along. Uh, it opens with Holmes waking Watson up uh, at seven thirty, which is like a very normal reason to wake up, and Watson just asks. Is there a fire? Because he doesn't <laughs> understand why he's being woken up before 8 a.m. Uh, and Holmes is like, well, we have a, there's a client downstairs and I know how interested you are. So you get just this immediate sense of like, they both, they both love this. Um, They're, yeah. It's also got a, a great villain. Um, My favorite. It's, uh, it's got everything, I think, in terms of if you want like a nice, creepy house ominous mystery story uh, totally the one slight is that um the speckled band in question is thought to at one point in the story be referring to uh the local romani people that are sort of traveling Ooh, in town interesting and it's just it's some typical 1800s uh like sort of fear of oh yeah others uh but they end up being completely innocent and they don't actually make an appearance 
So you're you're gonna like get a bit of that classic just a racism, little classic but... 19th century racism, you know? <laughs> yeah, but the actual story doesn't actually like. Ha- it's it not about that. <laughs> sure. Yes. Yes. No. Exactly. The the assumption that they have done something wrong is proven incorrect, and it is a white guy who is terrible. So. <laughs> Yay! As is usually the case. As is always the case. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I love it. I love it. Um, yes, the Speckled Land is definitely one of the ones that I remember reading the most vividly. Um, I think it's one that I that I read in high school, or I I might have even read it before then, but I think it was one of the ones that I was like assigned to read in high school because it's so classic. And it's definitely one, like you said, like there's a lot of good gothic horror in it, and so it's 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 got it all. And so for that one, I think what I'm going to pair with that one is uh, Cote de Rhone, which is also a red wine. I'm going to get I'm going to get to some white wines, I promise. But um, to me, Cote de Rhone is uh, it's it's a good one for this one because it depending on how it's made, because Cote de Rhone's are blends. So so they come from the Rhone region of France um, and they're usually a blend of Grenache, Syrah and Mauved and sometimes some other grapes in there and depending on how much Syrah is in there they can be like really dark or they can be a little bit lighter and a little bit kind of smoother easier drinking um my my personal favorite Coteron of the moment is um from a producer called Chave C-H-A-V-E and it's called the Moncour Coteron which is my heart uh Coteron um, it's really good, and it's got a little bit more Syrah to it, so I feel like that's a good one to pair with with this particular story because it's got it's got some darkness to it, but it's still uh, super drinkable and and fun. So like that like that relationship between Holmes and Watson that you start to get in this story. That sounds delicious. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Now it's, I'm just thinking about drinking that. I know. Wine. <laughs> now I'm thinking. Now I'm thinking. I might have to go get a bottle of that later because <laughs> yeah. it's like it's like it's a slightly more expensive one for Coderone because Coderones are really nice because they're often around like fifteen dollars a bottle and are really good for the value. This one is usually closer to twenty dollars a bottle, but still, I think it's worth it. It's it's very very tasty. Number three in the starter pack. And uh, these are in publication order. These are not the order that I think you like have to read them in. You awesome. Can, if only one of these sounds like up your alley, then, then go for it. You know? Yeah. Just... yeah, absolutely. <laughs> there are no rules in Sherlock Holmes. If uh, yeah. <laughs> The first rule about Sherlock Holmes is that there are no rules because Arthur Conan Doyle himself was kind of just churning these out for money. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> He published them over like forty years. Like he's yeah, just just go for it. They're they're supposed to be fun little pulp novels. <laughs> yeah, and I think and I love I love that you mentioned that. Like sometimes you can just enjoy something just because it, like it doesn't have to be like profound necessarily like literature not to say not to say that the Sherlock Holmes stories aren't great but they're meant to be fun they're meant to be like you said like they're fun mystery stories and they should be appreciated as as such no definitely like part of the reason why I'm so into Sherlock Holmes is on some level spite because I do Mm. feel like um there has been a lot of gatekeeping in Sherlock Holmes Um, for sure there are like literally Sherlock Holmes societies where people meet and they like discuss the stories 
and they uh, published research on them it's, mm-hmm. and it's scholarship papers and whatever. But like a lot of the societies only let men in, yeah, and shocking. you know they weren't going to listen to any scholarship where you're like, hey, maybe these uh, two men who lived together for 30 <laughs> years had something going on sexually at some point, and that was just not a thing you could talk about, even though I think that's um, a very reasonable thing to speculate about two bachelors who spend all their time I together. think that's very uh, reasonable. We can get more into that later, but yes. just, uh, there were a lot of people <laughs> who just wanted Sherlock Holmes to be just for them, mm-hmm. and... I'm not like those people in any way, and so I I get some satisfaction out of enjoying the stories despite them. <laughs> Absolutely, and that and that relates to something that I also I've 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 mentioned before on the podcast, but I feel like is especially relatable to Sherlock Holmes in the in terms of the wine industry because there's a lot of that like white male elitism in the in the wine industry as well, and there's a lot of gatekeeping, and it's getting much much better, but also. I think, you know, with our generation, especially in wine, there's a growing uh, appreciation of of wine just like just to be enjoyed, like just to just to have fun with it. Like it doesn't have to be super precious every time you drink wine, you know, and it doesn't have to be like a status symbol. It can just be it can just be fun. It can be just because you enjoy it. Exactly. It's- yeah. Definitely our generation is kind of coming up against this thing of like when something is sort of elitist is the answer to get rid of it or is the answer to bring it back down to real people. And I think those that's just a question we've been dealing with. Uh, I mean, I know every generation deals with that, but like it feels very of the moment. Uh, And if you don't want to give time to these hobbies, that's totally fair, but I also think that there's there's a lot of there's a lot to be found for yourself if you do. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I agree. What's the what's the next story? Ooh, yes. Um the next one is The Adventure of Charles Augustus Milverton. Uh hell of a name. Ooh. Hell of a name. <laughs> this is one this is one that I like I it sounds familiar to me, but if I read it, I can't remember what the plot was. So I'm excited to hear you. Uh, talk about it a little bit. Ah, uh, yes. This one is very fun because um, there's not a mystery in it. Uh, mm. Sherlock Holmes has been hired by a client to sort of deal with a delicate matter. Um, a, a lot of adaptations, they throw around the fact that Sherlock Holmes is a consulting detective as opposed to a detective, and then they just act like he's a regular detective. Right. Uh, and the consulting detective aspect of it is that he... If you go to him, the cops don't have to get involved at all. Like, he is an alternative to the police. And I think that's sort of something that, like, I get why modern adaptations are like, well, legally you can't do that. But it is very fun in the stories to read read stuff where, like, Holmes will find out that a criminal is guilty. And he'll be like, well, that's none of my business. Right. Uh, <laughs> I didn't I didn't sign nothing saying I had an obligation to turn this into anybody. Um Right, right. <laughs> so the adventure of Charles Augustus Milverton is that a lady has had indelicate letters that she wrote <gasps> to a former lover, um, <gasps> found by this blackmailer who is Charles Augustus Milverton. Ooh. And uh Holmes, she has hired Holmes to sort of negotiate Holmes for retrieving the letters. And because she doesn't have the money to pay this blackmail sum, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, Sherlock Holmes has uh, devised a way to break into this guy's house and steal the letters back, which is completely illegal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's uh, <laughs> he's breaking the law, and he is breaking the law to help someone who made you know, quote unquote, a mistake, but not something that he feels is morally wrong. It's something that right. society would punish her for that he doesn't think she deserves to be punished for. And he is he's willing to circumvent the law to do that, which I think is just such a great aspect of these stories is that it has a very it's very of its time. But like mm-hmm. Sherlock Holmes as a person is a progressive person who is not interested in the societal trappings of Victorian England. Absolutely. Yeah. No, that's such a refreshing perspective to get in a story from this from this time period because I feel like you don't you don't see that much in in stories at this at this point. And it's also um a great story for Holmes and Watson's friendship because mm-hmm. um they have this great exchange where Watson asks um when are we going, like, um, like, okay, yeah, like, what time do we, like, break into the house? Uh, and Holmes goes, uh, you are not coming. And Watson goes, then you are not going. Uh, no. <laughs> and he threatens to go straight to Scotland Yard and uh, tell them that Holmes is going to break in that night unless Holmes uh, brings him along. Aww. Because he's uh, not going to let uh, danger stand in the way of doing what is right or protecting his friend. And I think it's... Uh, It really shows you that they're both, you know, I think Watson gets a reputation for being the more conservative one. And I think that's not true. Mm -hmm. He's just as ready to do whatever is necessary as Holmes is. (laughs) Yeah, he's a little, he's, I'm trying to think of the right word. Like maybe he's a little less reckless or something, but, or maybe that's not right. Maybe not quite as eccentric as more is yeah. more the thing. But he is just as willing as Holmes, as you said, to like go and do the right thing and and he cares very deeply about Holmes. And that's that's such a beautiful thing. That's such a beautiful relationship to watch and 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 or read, depending on depending on what you're doing. It also is one of my favorite uh Watson moments in the canon where um, nice. when they originally try to negotiate with the blackmailer it doesn't go very well. Mm-hmm. And um the blackmailer um like touches his uh, revolver that he has, and uh, Watson immediately starts to lift up a chair, and Holmes like gives him a look and is like, "Don't do that." And Watson <laughs> puts the chair down, but he was like fully about to beat this fifty-year-old man with a chair. I love it. Oh my god, that's amazing. <laughs> oh, I love that so much. <laughs> Watson for the win. Uh, okay, so in hearing more about this story, I think I'm gonna give this one um, because it because it does seem like a little bit different in some ways, and so I'm gonna give this one New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, which some wine people or some people in the wine industry like to turn their nose up at, but New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc is a really iconic uh, wine, and I also think it's a great one for people to start with. Um, because it's 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 a white wine and it's very crisp. It's very usually very citrusy. It can be you know there's there's varying levels of quality as there are with everything. But I think it's a really good one for the price. Also, um, usually New Zealand Sauvignon Blancs are you can get a good one for like twelve dollars a bottle, which is harder to do with some of these like 
old world European wines. Not impossible, but a little bit harder. And so I think just from what you've from what you've been saying about it, I think that this that would be a good a good pairing for this story. Um, it's also it's well, it's not the it's not the only non-European wine that I chose in the starter pack, but um, but it's the only Southern Hemisphere wine <laughs> that I chose, which was not intentional. But um, <laughs> New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, really good. And and just for fun, my favorite. My favorite producer in New Zealand is uh, is called Grey Wacky, which I just think is a fun word to say. And I feel like uh, I feel like Holmes and Watson would like enjoy a glass of Grey Wacky Sauvignon Blanc. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Yeah. It's yeah. a it's a bit of a departure from the red wines of usual. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> like this. This story sounds a little bit different. It's not like a mystery. It's more it's more just. It's seeing Holmes's skills at work. Uh, next up is the problem of Thorbridge. Um, I really love this one. It's um, it's got a really great villain that I don't want to say too much about, but there's amazing. Uh, just a bit of a bit of a, a wicked woman who you don't really expect. Uh, <laughs> I love it. Love wicked women. Yeah, I love a I love a good uh, female villain. Me I love too. A good, uh... <laughs> Me too. I'm a I'm a I'm a villain fan myself, and so uh, and as a as an actor who is who does identify as a woman, um, I I I always like a good a good female villain. It, it's one of those great mysteries where like they show up and just everything seems turned against them, figuring mm. out what happened. Like the case seems so cut and dry that they're like, there's just no way we could get any new information out of this. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, Holmes does. Yes. <laughs> As he always does. <laughs> As he always does. Yeah, just a really brutal crime. But then, again, the Holmes and Watson have these great little uh, domestic moments. They mm-hmm. travel for this one, and it's always fun when they go to a new location. That is fun. And sort of get the feel of that new town. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, another great thing about this is... Uh, there is a very obnoxious rich man, and uh, Sherlock Holmes is very rude to him, and that's oh. always just so satisfying to read. Um, so satisfying. Holmes says something like, uh, "Men like you need to know that not everyone in the world can be like bought into agreeing with you." Oh, I love it. <laughs> Sherlock Holmes, voice of the people. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I love it. Uh, that is super satisfying. Yeah. Uh, so that guy gets a uh, quite a few thorough talking tos. Uh. <laughs> I love it. That I'm I'm sold because this is one this is one that I, I I don't think I ever read. So I'm excited. I'm excited to to read it for the first time. Yeah, I think it's like it's not necessarily a big standout because of anything that necessarily happens to it. I uh-huh. just think it's like a really solid little mystery that's got you know like just great character moments. Uh, Holmes, instead of, of course, he can never just tell people what happened, so he he literally reenacts the crime. Right. Uh, but he he takes the bullets out of a gun and then re, uh, reenacts the original shooting, which is just, like, uh. so dramatic. Like, let me get... Uh, otherwise, there's just no way the cops could understand unless they see me do a big act out myself. Right, right. <laughs> uh, and I, yeah, I love his flair for drama. Um, and I, very dramatic yes i love a i love a nice little wicked woman so it's a it's yeah just a solid one i think just a real solid one <laughs> awesome 
Okay, I think I'm going to go back to red wines for this one. These these don't have to be perfect pairings either. I think you can I think you can mix up these wines with these different stories. But um, for this one, this sounds like a Rioja to me, which is kind of the the best known Spanish red wine, which is made from Tempranillo. And the thing the reason why I I, I thought of this one is because you were just saying it's just like a really solid mystery and story. And I feel like Riojas are just like really solid wines and really kind of dependable. This is not always true, but like they don't necessarily always have as much like complexity to them as some of the other wines as as like some Ital- some of the Chiantis that I've mentioned or like or Cotarones or things like that but they I mean they can they can be really really good but they're they're just they're super solid and and also just saying a, a wicked woman Riojas tend to be very spicy um they're made from the grape Tempranillo they're my my husband Winston's favorite wines um and and I think I think though I don't know what this wicked woman is like, I feel like a Rioja might be right for her. Oh yeah, that's uh that's perfect because the well like obviously mm-hmm. since Spain is in Europe. Uh but yes. the um, <laughs> the murder victim is uh Mrs. Gibson, uh, who was originally from Brazil and everyone keeps talking about how very passionate perfect. she was. They they're very Oh, the Conan Doyle has obviously like only met white people. Yeah, he's being like, and as everyone knows, as, as everyone knows, <laughs> she's got such a tropical temperament, and it's like <laughs> oh, that's not how that works. Uh, <laughs> that's that's funny. That's funny, especially because her husband's an American. And if you want to talk about like big personalities, let's get into rich American guys. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> that's really funny. That's really funny. Okay, so that feels like that does feel like kind of the right, right kind of tone for this for this story. Uh, last uh, last story in my starter pack um, yes. is the Adventure of the Devil's Foot. Um, this is the one of my favorites. It's got a very very scary murder. Um, literally, mm. people are scared to death. Ooh. Oh, I. I don't necessarily remember reading this one, but I do remember I do remember some of the adaptations of it. So anyway, carry on. Yeah. So in the adventure of De- the Devil's Foot, Holmes and Watson have uh, retired. Oh no, not retired. They've taken a vacation to Cornwall because uh, Sherlock Holmes's nerves nerves are shattered because he's been mm-hmm. working so hard because he's such a workaholic that Watson is like, okay. You have to take a vacation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they go, they spend like a few days in Cornwall just sort of like l- walking around the water and just taking nice relaxing strolls. And then immediately there's been a horrible murder in town and Sherlock Holmes gets called in. Of course, of course. <laughs> Can't just have a break. And it's a doozy of a murder. Ooh. And it's got... um. I'll I'll give stuff away. It, this has been out for That's like a hundred years, guys. I don't yeah, tell yeah. <laughs> I I don't think we have to be too too worried about spoilers uh, yeah. in this one. I've been trying to be coy, but it's uh, there's an original murder, and then there's a revenge murder for the original murder. <laughs> mm, yep, yep, yep. And uh, it is one of the um, multiple stories where Sherlock Holmes lets the murderer go mm. because. They he thinks that they had 
a just cause for revenge. He's like, you know what, if I was in that position, I would have done that too. Um, he makes, he always, in these situations, he makes a point to not cover up evidence. Mm-hmm. But just to be like, well, it's not my job to solve these cases for the cops. If they, if they get you, they get you, but I'm not going to do anything about it. Right, right. <laughs> um, which, of course means that those people are fine uh, because the cops are never as smart as Sherlock <laughs> Right, right. I love it. I I love that he's even a little critical of the police in his... Oh, yeah, he's he's always dunking on them. Sometimes yeah. there are stories where he's he is quite chummy with the police, but uh, definitely in the early stories, uh, he is, he's very critical of them and he kind of makes... He uses them as a punchline. Uh, yeah, yeah. Which is always nice to read. And yeah. I think more adaptations, adaptations like Elementary and Sherlock will have him, like, you know, make jokes about the police and then still work with them. And it is kind of frustrating. Yeah. Um, and I hope that now that people are more, that white Americans are more aware of the fact that the cops aren't always good. Yep. Uh, yep, yep. <laughs> we might finally get some adaptations that acknowledge. The skepticism of the police force that exists in these stories from the 1800s. Right. Wouldn't that be wouldn't that be interesting? Yeah, I, I do think that's true. It's like because so many of the adaptations feel like kind of your stand. I don't want to say like your standard crime procedurals, but but like they follow a similar kind of form as as some of those. So there is always kind of that relationship with the police, um, which is is definitely frustrating. It's definitely frustrating. So I I agree. I hope you're right. I hope we get a little bit more kind of progressive and and critical adaptations one of these days. Yeah, cuz I think something that I really enjoy about the world of Sherlock Holmes is that it's all about not all about like, again, he does he is quite ch- chummy with the cops sometimes. Sure, sure. Yeah. He is a valid alternative to going to the police. He is he helps people who feel like they maybe aren't in a good position to accept help from legal authorities, which I think is really valuable to have, you know, absolutely. this alternate take on it. Absolutely. Uh, the Adventure of the Devil's Foot also is one of my favorite stories uh, for the friendship between Holmes and Watson. Mm-hmm. Um, the the me- method that people are dying is from this uh, drug that makes people hallucinate and they see such horrible things that um, some of them die and some of them uh, just go mad. Very scarecrow. And Sherlock Holmes, uh, <laughs> local genius Sherlock Holmes is like, so let's try it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Gotta love him. And he's like, Watson, you don't have to do this. And Watson's like, no, I, I think we have to do it. Yeah, I think you need supervision, and of course, it immediately goes wrong. And um, Watson is the one who is able to get his wits about him to get them out of the house, which I think is just a great moment for them. Yeah, for him, and then they have this great moment together Mm -hmm. where they're sort of uh, recovering, and they they're both kind of uh, both quite emotional for Victorian men about the fact that they yeah. died. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Very emotional for Victorian men. So it's just, yeah, it's a, it's a nice story about uh, friendship and the power of love and also how the power of love sometimes makes you uh, brutally murder someone for <laughs> get away with it. <laughs> what could be more appropriate than that? Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So for that one, Okay, I realized I actually came up with six wines. Oops. Um, so I'll, I'll give. Wait, honor- I have a bonus story here. So. 
Oh, perfect. Perfect. Okay, great. So so I'm going to give this one another red wine, but I swear I do have another white wine to talk about. Um, but so this one, I think I've got to give uh, California Cabernet because just talking about like how scary this story is, and it is, it does sound like very scary and very dark. And I do remember, I think there's an adaptation of it in, in Sherlock, at least, that I sort of remember if uh unless I-, I i think they i didn't actually watch this episode but i think they mixed it with the hound of the baskervilles it's possible it's very possible because that's also a story about sort of people literally being scared to death right right May- yeah maybe maybe that's what i'm thinking of it's possible that's what i'm thinking of but um but i'm going to give this one california cabernet because um that's like your classic like deep dark tannic red wine um, that I feel like kind of sets the kind of eerie mood that that you get from this from this story. And California Cab is one of my favorite wines. It's tr- unfortunately, it's one of the ones where it's hard. It's getting harder and harder to find good ones that aren't super expensive. Um, like you can find some that are, some that are good and some that are, that are very tasty, but like, because the wine industry in Napa is just like so inflated there and, and it like the name Napa Valley Cabernet just holds so much weight to it, um, that it's, it's hard to find a good, a good bottle of, of California Cab that isn't crazy expensive, but one of my favorites that's still still pretty pricey, but not like outrageous. It's like $30, $35 a bottle usually. It's called the Kith and Kin Cabernet, which I feel like is a is a very appropriate wine for Holmes and Watson because they are like Kith and Kin to each other. That's lovely. <laughs> yeah, and the and you know, after they recover from taking this deadly poison, maybe they'll have a glass of Kith and Kin Cabernet together just to kind of calm yeah. down. <laughs> they drink so much. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> Got to love it. Got to love it. And Sherlock, I mean, this is I don't know how important a detail this is, but I also love cuz I I did reread um A Scandal in Bohemia. The other night, um, just to just to kind of get get my head back in Arthur Conan Doyle. Hell yeah, yeah, and it's and it's so good. But like in the first paragraph, it's like, and he vacillated between you know his taking cocaine and you know running around and like pouring over oh, yeah. papers. Cocaine and ambition. Cocaine I and that ambition. It sounds right. so much like an eighties lyric. <laughs> yes, absolutely, absolutely. And it's it, it can be kind of like it. It, and it's so like nonchalant that <laughs> you're like, wait, what? <laughs> so yeah, so so you know, I think I think wine is a much healthier way to cope than cocaine. Personally, that's just my personal opinion. But oh yeah, uh, if you read, uh, fans of Sherlock Holmes will be relieved to learn that uh, by the adventure of the Devil's Foot, uh, Holmes has stopped using cocaine. He's kicked. There he's is kicked a his habit where he's. He's setting up the uh, let's drug ourselves on purpose experiment and Watson <laughs> like comes downstairs and is like, oh, God, we're doing drugs again. I thought we stopped doing drugs. <laughs> and Holmes is like, no, these are different drugs. This is different uh, drugs. This is for science. <laughs> you know that I've stopped using the other drugs. Uh, right. <laughs> it's a science drug. Yeah. It's, it's all cool. It's fine if it's for science. <laughs> 
Definitely this won't almost get us killed yep. in a horrible manner. <laughs> yep. No no problems there. No problems there. <laughs> oh my goodness. That that story sounds really fun. That's the that's the one to me that I think I'm most excited to to read because I don't think I read this story. I think I've only I've only heard about it or seen adaptation because it sounds familiar, but I can't I can't like put my finger on it. So I'm excited to reread that one. I also I have a a bonus recommendation yes. for the for wine lovers specifically, yes. which is the adventure of the Abbey Grange. And um, this story I think would appeal to uh, wine experts because Holmes uses his knowledge of wine to solve the case. I love it. I love yeah, it. There's three burglars came into this house. Um, they killed. The man of the house, and they tied up uh, the woman of the house. The late—I don't know what the official term is. The lady the woman of the lives house, there and they yeah. killed the husband. And then they, um, during their burglary, at some point, they also like were brazen enough to stop and have a bottle of wine. <laughs> <laughs> it's me. It's me. If I were a murderer, <laughs> um, so they poured the three glasses of wine, and um, Holmes notices that one of the glasses has bees wing in it Ooh. and the others don't and that makes Holmes reevaluate the whole story. Ooh. So that's maybe if you're if you're a wine expert, maybe you could also use that to solve a crime. Oh my god. Oh my god. <laughs> I could basically be a detective, I think, with my with my wine knowledge. Um. There you go. <laughs> Provided of course that uh the criminals in question um take out the cork in a weird way and also uh, yeah seem like they poured glasses of wines at different times yeah (laughs) (laughs) like you do when you commit when you commit murder gotta gotta have a glass of wine but but pace yourself (laughs) yeah uh emma could you explain a bit about uh yes beeswing because i Sherlock Holmes spoke very confidently as if I also understood what was going on there. And I'll be honest, I did not. <laughs> I, 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 I don't know. I'm, I'm sorry. I don't know what the bee's wing would, would indicate in, in the wine. I think it's like potassium something. <laughs> Wikipedia told me that something to do with potassium, like in the fermentation. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's possible it could have something to do with like where the wine was made. And if it was made somewhere where there's known to be, like, a bee farm there as well or something, um, that's that's the only thing that I could think. Or, or if it's, like, a wine known to have some level of something or other in it that bees are drawn to. Um, or, or if it's, like, a honeymead or something like that. Because uh, meat is made from honey, but but other other than that, I can't think of what the bee's wing would indicate. I that's that's a that's a a a blank in my wine knowledge. Okay, yeah, Wikipedia is saying it's related to cream of tartar, so I don't know mm. how that works. <laughs> yeah, hmm, I don't know. I'm gonna have to read this story 
The crude form known as beeswing is collected and purified to produce the white odorless acidic powder used for many culinary and other household purposes. Huh. This isn't really clarifying stuff, but thank you anyway, Wikipedia. Yeah, yeah, that's that's some interesting information to know for sure. Yeah, but yeah, I don't know. I'll have to I'll have to look look into look into the beeswing. Oh, Emma, 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 those were terrible guesses. I would make a terrible private detective. Okay, so beeswing <laughs> is not as I assumed an actual beeswing. It's um it's a reference to a phenomenon that happens particularly in port, um, I believe. So I actually found this on Reddit on a, a post about this story. Um, and so so here's what here's what I've got. Beeswing is basically a filmy, translucent crust that forms on port wine. This makes sense because port was a big part of Victorian England at this time. Uh, it, it, it was it would be a thing that Holmes and Watson would drink for sure. Um, Sometimes it can be in older wines that have been bottle-aged for quite a while or stored at certain temperatures. Beeswing is really potassium bitartrate, or what cooks would now know as cream of tartar, at least after the film has been dried. So that's that's the connection there. I won't solve, I won't spoil the mystery for you and how this information helps Holmes uh, solve the mystery, but it does make sense. So, um, so yeah, so, so... There you go. I learned something new. So I I don't know if this one is necessarily a perfect pairing for this story, though it does sound it does sound like it could be fun. But I do want to mention the last white wine that I that I feel like I need to give credit to, which is Chardonnay, and which is a white wine, but particularly French Chardonnay. Chardonnay gets kind of a bad rap these days because a lot of people think it's just like super oaky, kind of buttery like vanilla-y kind of wine, kind of tastes like a cupcake. And, and and to some people, they love that. It can be like that, but it can also be made very, very differently. And um, France and Burgundy specifically is where, is where Chardonnay is best, I think, is where it really shines because it can range from like super, super crisp, really refreshing, almost like a Sauvignon Blanc, to something that has some oak and some weight to it. You know, again, I'm not sure if that's the perfect pairing for this story necessarily, but it it is definitely in my in my wine starter pack. And maybe maybe there's something with bees wings and Chardonnay. I don't know. I'll look it up. <laughs> <laughs> also, we don't have to talk about this right now, but since I just mentioned Burgundy, I know you mentioned to me that they often mention uh, the wines from Bone in Sherlock Holmes, or or they mention it at some point, and the Bone the Cote de Bone is in Burgundy in France. And if it's a white wine, it's made from Chardonnay. If it's a red wine, it's made from Pinot Noir. Ooh, yes. Um, in the sign of four, uh, Watson mm. has been the sign of the four. I always, I always skip that the. Um. Yeah, sign of four sounds better to me. Yeah, but it just it makes more sense. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, take a note, Arthur Conan Doyle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the sign of four, I, here's the thing, like, if you read those five stories and you like them, um, and you're like, okay, I'm going to get more into Sherlock Holmes, I would suggest just reading the first volume of short stories, The Adventure of Sherlock Holmes. Mm-hmm. I think those are kind of like, you know how like an album will have like no skip tracks? Yeah. That's The Adventure of Sherlock Holmes. Uh, Perfect. I the love it. other volumes, I think, usually have like at least one story where you're like, ah, pass. Uh, <laughs> nice. Nice. But I think um, 
Adventure Sherlock Holmes, like, very solid um, collection. If you read all of that and you're super into it, um, probably at that point you do want to say go back to uh, the novels. Um, uh-huh. I just think if you were if you read the stories and you want to know next steps, I would uh, I would go first volume and then either circle back or just read all the stories straight through. Um, Got it. Whichever you feel like, but I think those are the best paths. Awesome. The sign of four, I think, is generally like really great as a character thing because mm-hmm. it shows. It opens with Holmes and Watson, like, really just frustrated with each other. <laughs> uh, and it ends with Watson moving out. And then, of course, what's so great is that you get to the adventures where they're both like, that was a mistake. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just had a quick lover's quarrel. Um, and it's it's always fun to sort of speculate on, like, where the characters' heads are at at different places. Right. But uh, the sign of four, first chapter, is so funny if you know that the end of it is Watson uh, getting married and moving out because the first chapter is just them very uh, mad at each other because Holmes has been doing a lot of cocaine. And Watson is like, I would love it if you uh, didn't do cocaine three times a day. Oh, my God. (laughs) He's been doing cooking three times a day, (laughs) which is, I would not advise. And obviously, if you live with a doctor, he'll also be like, you should stop. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And Watson has been not really bringing this up because Holmes uh, can be um, quite a dominating personality and kind of uh, mean when he wants to be. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there's this, uh, yeah. But Watson writes, uh, yet upon that afternoon, whether it was the bone which I had taken with my lunch or the additional exasperation produced by the extreme deliberation of his manner, I suddenly felt that I could hold out no longer. Which is it today I asked? Morphine or cocaine? Um, which is also very funny that Watson was like, well, because I was a little drunk, I could bring this up. Right, right. I love that. I love that. <laughs> and something fun about this passage is because... Um, Watson and Holmes's birthdays are never actually mentioned in the canon, but mm-hmm. the, um, a lot of scholars have like invented birthdays for them sure. based off of when, based off of speculated drinking habits. Um, uh-huh. And so, some <laughs> scholars think that the date of the sign of four starts is Watson's birthday because he treated himself to a bone with lunch, which is a bit of an indulgence for a guy living off of a pension. Pension. Though yeah. Also, uh, I. I feel like if you were writing about the day you met your wife. Yes. And it was your birthday. I feel like you bring that up. I feel like that's tied to it. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that would come up. But, but you know, who am I? I mean, maybe it was, yeah. he just maybe wanted not, to, to enjoy a, a nice a nice uh, glass of, of bone with his lunch, you know? Hey, yeah. more power to him. But, uh, yes, this, this specific... I have been drinking because I'm on the par- parent. Yes, uh, yes. This specific wine is notable for being a source of speculation as to like, oh, why was Watson treating himself at lunch? What, did something happen? Was it a special occasion? Got it. Etc. Well, that's good. That's good to know because I mean, you know, I mean, at this point, like, if you got a wine from the bone region of of Burgundy, they can get very, very pricey. Um, it's kind of one of the more prestigious regions in the world, and I believe the most expensive wines in the world come from this part of France. So it's good to know that, like, that's that's sort of consistent, that it's not just, like, 
cool and casual that that <laughs> he's just having a glass a glass of that at lunch. Um, it's nice nice to see that at least scholars think that that that's remarkable. Yeah, he is unemployed at this point. So. Yeah, yep. <laughs> so probably not something that he would normally that he would do under those circumstances. That's interesting. That's interesting to hear because you know over time and also in different places in the world, both like culturally and financially, wine can be very very different. So obviously, like in parts of Europe, it's very normal to have a glass of wine with lunch, um, but which which wine it is probably depends on who you are and uh and how much money you have <laughs> yeah they are usually enjoying the best of life which is i think Love one it. of the other things that's so great about these stories is it, it like they are these nice little escapist fantasies um i've i've joked uh before that like truly the the appeal the enduring mm-hmm. appeal of Sherlock Holmes is that it is a story about a successful freelancer. Yes. <laughs> he, he is self-employed. He sets his own rates. He decides his own clients. He um, he just doesn't work if he doesn't feel like it. Um, and he that. has often turned down clients offering exuberant amounts of money because he doesn't want to work with them and he doesn't have anyone else to answer to. And I think... Um, for a lot of people in the gig economy, oh my god, that's the life. You that's know, like the dream. imagine being yeah. able to be like, "Oh no, thank you, Netflix. I don't actually uh, need this. Right, I'm, I'm totally financially secure by myself. Uh, uh, that's the dream. One day, I know. One day, one day. <laughs> no, that's a really that's a really great way to think about it. It's he is like just a a successful freelancer who has a pretty decent moral compass. And I mean, I feel like there are moments where that that maybe is a little bit more questionable, but but overall, yeah, it wavers. It wavers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it wavers. That's a, that's a good way to put it. Um, but overall, like he's a pretty solid dude, just a very eccentric, solid dude. I reread that uh, first first chapter the other yeah. day, and it is just like it's it's so funny because Holmes is so confident that yeah. he can kind of just keep treating Watson like trash and then uh, Watson immediately is like hey she seems really nice and maybe it (laughs) you know I'm uh, I've been living with you for seven or eight years and I met you when I was 30 and maybe it's time that I move out and get a wife and and then Holmes spends the rest of the novel desperately trying to win Watson back, which Watson is oblivious to, which is, I think, to sort of steer our course a bit. Like, I think I'm a writer, and so I I love good writing, not just for the pleasure of good writing, but also for sort of picking it apart. And I think one of the things that's so interesting about um, the Sherlock Holmes series is that you've got this level of... um, Yes, it's a fiction story, but it's a fiction story written by a character in the story mm-hmm. to be published to the public, which yeah. means it is it is slightly different than those fiction stories that are narrated first person or that are mm-hmm. written in letters because there is an intentional awareness that it is being released to be consumed by other people. Like Watson will often mention like, I'm not going to mention na- like specific names 
or specific years because the story is like really delicate. Like I'm changing details on purpose for you. Right. And I think that creates this really fun if if you want to get really into it, which you don't have to do. I think it's totally a series that can be enjoyed just one off mysteries at a time. But like if you if you're like yeah, let's let's do this, baby. Uh, yeah. <laughs> there's this kind of really rich meta narrative if you like if you like picking stuff apart. And Absolutely. One of one of the joys of that is that Watson at least presents himself to be the most oblivious man in the yeah. world, but is still able to capture these very telling details. Like Watson never mentions Watson seems completely oblivious to the fact that, like, Holmes suddenly is trying to get on his good side, which right. is either, like, fear of Watson moving out or just because he gets a case and that puts him in a good mood because he, right. you know, he he's very, uh, the, obviously the books don't say if he has, like, depression or bipolar disorder or he's manic or right. what, whatever that is, but, like, obviously he is very susceptible to his brain bullying him. <laughs> yes, yes. He he is, he suffers from some form of mental illness, for sure. So, it, but, like, he, when he's working, he's happy. So, mm-hmm. in The Sign of Four, I think something that's really uh, fun about it is that Holmes is, like, as soon as he gets a case, he's a lot nicer. Um, he makes a point to, uh, you know, play the violin for Watson. Mm-hmm. He, um... There's this really funny bit where he uh, orders like this nice dinner, and he like makes some comment about like you've uh, you've never acknowledged my merits as a homemaker, which is like, what are you doing, buddy? Uh, <laughs> he's like, hey, should we get a dog? He's just panicking yeah. that whole novel, and yeah. Watson is oblivious to it because he's just met the woman he's going to marry. Oh, that's so that's brilliant. <laughs> and it's uh, it's very funny, which is, again, why I kind of suggest reading the later stories first mm-hmm. before cycling back, because it's, you kind of need to know, like, the second Mary Morrison walks on the scene, like, oh, this is happening. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it, it, I can imagine it being nice, like, n- having a little bit more context for their relationship and then going back and, and experiencing kind of some of the earlier stuff um, being really, really fun. But yeah, you you you're totally right. There is there is this beautiful like very complex meta narrative um to these to these stories that you don't necessarily like you may not you may not think about it necessarily when you're reading it, but if you take a step back, you're like, "Oh, whoa. There's a lot going on here." Here's my yeah, my go-to example of like kind of the joy of sort of taking the whole series like Mhm. Like, kind of doing a dig in on that and, like, sort of looking at the context around the work. Yeah. Is that, um, so, okay, spoiler alert, uh, Arthur Conan Doyle kills off Sherlock Holmes in, uh... Yes. <laughs> after two vols- two volumes of short stories, he's like, I've had enough of this guy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, people aren't reading my histories. Kill him. I'm, yeah. I'm sick he's of this. Dead. I'm sick of having to write the same character over and over again. Um... So in 1893, uh-huh. Doyle kills off Sherlock Holmes in a story that takes place in 1891. Uh-huh. Um, and what's interesting about this is the uh, is a scandal in Bohemia. The first short story about Sherlock Holmes was published in uh, June 1891, a month mm. after 
Holmes's alleged death, which means uh, Interesting. he's been dead the whole time. <laughs> that's that's really interesting. Because I think Watson's hero worship of Sherlock Holmes, I think, can uh, obviously like he is still hero worshiping at like in the later stories as well. After a spoiler alert, uh, y- yeah, Sherlock Holmes comes back. <laughs> <laughs> he's fine. He's uh, fine. <laughs> but I think there's like I think some of Watson downplaying himself and talking Holmes up is a bit more interesting when you are thinking of it in terms of someone writing about their best friend who died heroically. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it it adds a nice layer to this. And then it it's also great because um between Sherlock Holmes uh, and announcing he's alive to Watson and then the public learning that he's alive. Mm, mm-hmm. Again, this is talking as if about the characters as if they're real people who are publishing things. Right. But uh, yeah. <laughs> I know they're not real. Uh, but are but, they? But in that window of Watson knowing he's alive and the public uh-huh. knowing he's alive, uh-huh. Watson, uh, again, quote unquote Watson, but it's Arthur Conan Doyle, uh, publishes right. uh, The Hound of the Baskervilles, which was... Uh, this great story that Doyle was sort of testing out the waters on bringing Holmes back. Uh-huh. But it's a story about where Watson takes the spotlight and Holmes is in it very little. And there's even this amazing scene where Watson uh, confronts Holmes about never including him in plans mm-hmm. and being deceptive and being sneaky. Um, well, yeah, the quote is, um, then you use me and yet do not trust me. I cried with some bitterness. I think that I have deserved better at your hands, Holmes, which is just mm. very interesting when you put it in the context of him writing this after learning about that betrayal. Uh, right. Even though if you were to read them in order, you mm-hmm. wouldn't know that. Right. You would not know that this betrayal had happened because right. it wasn't written in that. It wasn't mm. written with that in mind. It just sort of came about. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, that's fascinating. I'm also glad you brought up Hound of the Baskervilles. Um, as I as I mentioned to you, it's one that holds a a soft spot in my heart just because I saw a, a theatrical adaptation of it once um, at Shakespeare and Company in Lenox, Massachusetts, where I trained briefly, and it was just I don't remember like anything particularly profound about the production or anything like that, but I just I just remember having a lot of fun watching it and thinking it was a really fun story. So that's that's one that holds a holds a dear place in my heart. Oh yeah, I think it's it's unquestionably the strongest novel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I I think it has that reputation for sure. Yeah the the other novels they have just some real weird stuff going on. Um, a study in Scarlet and the Valley of Fear both are like. Half of this novel is going to be a Western for no reason. Yeah. <laughs> and then the sign of four. I would, I understand why, like, people don't adapt the sign of four. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's some weird racism going on. In oh, there. yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, that'll some happen. real out there racism <laughs> that I feel like, um, I think it's due for an adaptation that kind of. Deals with that, maybe. The sign of the four is, uh, the four are a group of, uh, people who like very disparate people who met up in India and decide to split a treasure. Mm-hmm. And then um shocker, uh <laughs> the white guys betray the guys in India. Ah. <laughs> oh, what and a take the treasure. Who could have um, seen this coming? And I think that 
there could be a very interesting version of that sort of takes the moral side of I forget I there was an Indian man and then it was like I uh-huh. think an Arab man um it's been a while since I've read it sure but I think there is an interesting version to be made that addresses how this is sort of a microcosm of colonialism and how like kind of those white guys have it coming absolutely uh, <laughs> yeah yeah um there's also a pygmy character which is just um uh Arthur Conan Doyle uh, makes up a race that he thinks is bad from a country he thinks uh, would be bad, and uh, that's not great. It's not a great look. It's not a great look. Again, I think that there's (laughs) an adaptation could be made that sort of addresses that head on. Like, absolutely. Casting a normal guy and having the white people act horrified, even though he's a normal guy. Right. Um, Right. I, I get it's definitely. I am of Arab descent, so I kind of feel like uh, mm-hmm. I can still enjoy stuff that's shitty about Arabs because I can be like, well, at least uh, I know that you're dead out there, Conan Doyle, and you believe right. in ghosts, so what do you, who cares what you think? Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. um, but I also understand anyone who's like, I have no interest in reading that again. Um, yeah, yeah. Fair. <laughs> there is, um, I, I have a list of um, some, some skips. Here are a few uh-huh. stories that you shouldn't read. Not worth it. <laughs> great. That's that's great information. Yes. Do not read The Yellow Face. I know some people think that it's got, like, lovely writing, and it does have lovely writing, but I, every time I read it, I am mortified by just the super white liberal racism. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just the, just the title makes me think big red flags. Big red flags. Yeah. The weird thing is, is yeah, I... I was told to skip it, and when I finally read it to be a completionist, yeah. I was like, oh, this isn't the racism I was expecting, but it still feels worse. Yep. Uh, <laughs> Goody. <laughs> okay, uh, next, definitely skip um, The Three Gables. Okay. Now, this is tough because there is a very good story called The Three Garabels, which Ooh. rocks, and I do recommend. Okay. I don't know why he named two stories so incredibly so, similarly, so similar. and then made one of them incredibly racist. Yeah. <laughs> but um, the three gables, gables like um, triangular window panes. That's... Yes. It is a noun, the three garabels. Garabels is the last name of a person. Got it. Um, I was going to say, I don't know I what a garabel is. I <laughs> strongly recommend reading the three garabels, and I would strongly recommend skipping the three gables, which isn't that good, and then also like... Right. Fully has the N-word in it. Okay, great. Yep. Yeah, don't need totally that. the end one. We don't need that. We don't need that. <laughs> Just no reason to read it. Yep. No reason to read it. Yep. Uh, the Adventure of Wisteria Lodge uh-huh. um, isn't as bad as those two, mm-hmm. but Doyle makes up a fake country called San Pedro, mm. and it's never that great if a British white guy is, like, making up a South American yep. country. Yep. yep. And then being, like, extremists from San Pedro. Just shut up. Yeah. Yep. Nope. <laughs> nope. <laughs> Nope, don't um, do it. Yeah, like I said, the sign of four is iffy. I, mm-hmm. The racism in the sign of four is like almost like it's so detached from reality again that like yeah. I can read it, but I definitely understand like it's definitely you shouldn't take it at face value. Got it. The crooked man just isn't that great of a story, and um, mm-hmm. kind of the premise of it is check out how fucked up and gross this disabled man is, which, like, not a great premise for a thing. No, that's not good at all. Yeah. Uh, Just um, hard skip. Uh, (laughs) Yep. 
Also, um, every so often in a Sherlock Holmes story, they kill a dog. Like, way more than you think happens. You think it'll happen no times, and it happens at least three. So definitely a thing where if that is a, a sensitive point, um, yeah. look into, I believe there are, like, sites that cover this. <laughs> okay, yeah. I, that's, that's, good, that's good information to know, because that is is very upsetting um so those are the the big minefields and then of Got course it. you know it the first story was written in uh the 1880s mm-hmm. they're published the 1920s you are going to get opinions about you know british imperialism and right. women and foreigners etc cetera, etc cetera, that are very much of their time i think there's value in reading stuff like that because it helps you sort of think more critically yeah. and sort of put stuff in context. But yeah, I, I'm not, the fact that I love those stories is not me being like, and I wouldn't change a word. Not the case. <laughs> like I said, when, when I come across stuff that, you know, hates me specifically, I yeah. can at least be like, well, you know what, Arthur Conan Doyle, like one, you're dead. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're not profiting off of my enjoyment of this whatsoever. Right. You're super dead, and most of your stuff is in the public domain, so your relatives aren't even profiting off of this. Right. And then, two, um, he, uh, he was very gullible. He, again, yeah. He was, he was very smart. It's just, like, he fell for that fake uh, fairy photograph, and he um, mm. got really into spiritualism. Mm. And, like, he definitely did a lot of academic research, and I'm sure that he was one of the smartest spiritualists, but like sure. it definitely helps when you read something that's like pretty problematic to be like, well, yes, but he believed a lot of dumb stuff that is that people agree is stupid. Like, right, <laughs> right, it, yeah. Because he's dead, it is easier to sort of take that separation as opposed to say, like, you know, all of the stuff that's come out about Joss Whedon, it's a lot yeah. more questionable because it's like. Oh, but I really went in trusting Joss Whedon's opinion. Like, I really right. did think he was, you know, a progressive man of our time. And right. it is on some level kind of helpful to be like, to just read someone who you can go in being like, they're wrong. Yes. <laughs> I know that. We know that. History is validated that they're wrong and it's fine. Like, Absolutely. no one is fighting me on this. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. No, there, there, there is something comforting about that, being able to to look at it from a kind of larger world perspective, um, because he did, you know, he did write these a long time ago. And maybe if he had written them now, they would be a little different. Yeah. That's what, that's <laughs> like, what I, one can I only definitely, hope. I would try to fight him in a parking lot if uh, he was publishing this shit now. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, which I would lose because he was a uh, he was also a bodybuilder. So. Yeah, wasn't he was wasn't he like a like a fighter? Didn't he do some fighting and stuff or am I making well, that okay, up? Well, uh Holmes does boxing. So oh, that's I, right. I think it would make sense if Arthur Conan Doyle was a boxer. I know that he was really into bodybuilding and mm-hmm. there was um he in fact judged a bo- bodybuilding contest. I read a very <laughs> amusing story on i think mental floss about like um interesting he, he determined like the the strongest man in europe or whatever and then uh-huh. he ran into that guy and like uh helped him out which is hey, very sweet um that is arthur conan doyle if you read the stories he has a great appreciation of the male form he yes. has a great appreciation of the female form he's very into human body he's just if someone's hot he wants you to know about it which yeah. i love yeah i love that 
That's something I love about Watson's narration is like, I think, yeah, I think there's this idea of like, Holmes is the eccentric one and Watson is this very buttoned up, repressed Victorian man. And he's right. not. He's so emotional. And he also, he loves, he loves uh, making catty little comments about everybody. Uh-huh. And he loves talking about how hot everyone is. He's so love horny that. for everyone in the books. I, all I the love time. that. <laughs> People will come in and it's like, They've just suffered a horrible tragedy, you know, the the sister is missing or the wife's just died or whatever. And he will still tell you how hot they are, (laughs) even though it's not appropriate in the moment whatsoever. (laughs) That is that is hilarious. I love that. I'm looking forward to rereading some of these stories, knowing some of this going in, because I don't think I was as aware of it when I was reading them when I was like a teenager. Um, But that's amazing. I love it. I Definitely recommend, like, you know, I I hate to do that thing, you know, with TV recommendations mm-hmm. where it's like, you got to stick around for a few episodes because yeah. then it gets good because it's always like, just be good right away. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, like, the reason why that's true of TV and I think also of stories is, like, you need a time, you need time to adapt to the language of the art you're consuming. Absolutely. Um, which I think, Emma, I think really relates to wine is you need to develop a taste for it. Definitely. That's a great wine connection. Because, like, I I think there is an idea that these stories are really dry mm-hmm. and old and the language is kind of stuffy. And, like, that is true. But now that I've, at least for me, like, once I got into them, I was able to see a lot of humor, a lot of great character stuff. Yeah. Um, like I mentioned before, like, Watson picking up that chair. Like, yes, if you were just reading it and you're not really engaging with it, you just see, like... Oh, okay, yeah, the guy touched his revolver and Watson, like, touched a chair and then, you know, but, like, if you're really in it and understanding, like, the language and the flow of this, you understand that, like, what's going on is Watson is ready to beat a man. (laughs) Right, right, right. Yeah, no, I love that. I love that. And I think that's a really, that's a really good connection. And I think that's, I think that's true of, of a lot of literature and a lot of media, but especially something that's written kind of in a vernacular that's not what you're necessarily like, not your everyday, I guess, is, uh, is what I'd say, whether it's just old fashioned or it's unusual in some way. If you really, if you take the time to like get into it, you'll appreciate it so much more and you start like thinking in, in that world, in the world of that language. And I think that's true. That is very much true of wine. Like you just, you literally have to train your palate. You have to train your mouth um, and your nose (laughs) and uh, to, to like recognize certain things and appreciate certain things. And, and it is like, I, I, I've mentioned this sometimes, but like talking about wine kind of has its own language um, in in a lot of ways. And you kind of just have to learn, learn that. Um, I mean, you don't have to, but but if you want if, yeah, yeah. if you want to get into it, then you'll then you'll learn it. And it's and it's a cool thing to immerse yourself in. Yeah. With with sticking with. Uh. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, so you mentioned this before, and I definitely want to make sure we talk about it. It's sort of related to what we were just talking about, but we've got to talk about the relationship between Holmes and Watson and the the different ways one could possibly interpret <laughs> such a relationship. Yes, that to me, uh, that's definitely the main draw of it. Um, as yeah. I said, like, originally my interest in it was because I had 
loved the relationship uh, mm-hmm. between House and Wilson on House, and it was like, oh, yeah. here is something that scratches that same itch, even though it's not a modern-day medical procedural, you'll still get to watch, you know, right? super smart guy with bad social skills with the, you know, nice guy with good social skills who's uh, just as bonkers as him. Yeah, in just different, <laughs> in, a, in a different way. Like, like you said, he's like a little bit more, he has a little bit more kind of social uh, intelligence, maybe, than Holmes or House, depending on, depending on who you're, who you're talking about. Right, yeah, it's a, it's an English major jock friends with a chemistry major theater kid. Like, it's, yeah, that's yeah. sort of the, <laughs> the cross-reference. So, like, there's overlap in those, but, like, obviously right. on different sides of whatever alignment chart you have <laughs> right right yes uh, and now i'm thinking about like the D alignment chart from like jock <laughs> to chemistry <laughs> but yeah and so there's i mean i personally i i'm sure you you have thought about this much more than i have thought about this um for me there's nothing wrong with you know like two men having a like intimate relationship with each other that's not necessarily romantic or uh, I don't know if romantic's the right word or but that's not like sexual you know but I do think that there are ways to interpret this story <laughs> that might suggest that they're more than just friends you know or their friendship is a little bit deeper than just you know two roommates who like to go solve crime together. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, um, I'm asexual and aromantic, uh, mm-hmm. in case uh, you didn't all immediately Google me when I got yeah, on the yeah. podcast. <laughs> um, so I definitely, like, I am the last person in the world who would be like, well, you obviously can't be friends with someone right. with, uh, without... Um, you know, having some sort of romantic attachment because, like, I fully believe right. that you know, for me in my life, like, if I if I happen to meet you know my perfect match, we will be friends. <laughs> right. That's right. Uh, like totally fair and valid. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I think it is worth it's worth considering how much work straight men throughout history have put into claiming Sherlock Holmes when he doesn't belong to them. Right. There is, I cannot stress this enough, and this is not, you know, some sort of, like, we're reading, like, some, mm-hmm. like, subtextual. There is no evidence in the stories that Sherlock Holmes is or has ever been attracted to women. It's not in the text. There's nothing in the text that suggests it. There is... One line in The Lion's Mane mm-hmm. where he alludes, and The Lion's Mane is written when Holmes is in retirement. So he's like approaching his 60s, mm-hmm. and there is a young woman that two men are in love with, and he acknowledges that while he has generally not appreciated women, he like gets it, which to me reads very much as an older person acknowledging the beauty of youth. Like, it's, yeah. Mm-hmm. He really couches it in language of like, well, this isn't my thing. <laughs> sure. That, and sure. that is the only indication in the entire 60-story series. Yeah. Which includes four novels, two wow. stories from his perspective. <laughs> yeah. 
True story is written from omniscient narrator. Like, there's just, the if you think that Sherlock Holmes is straight, you have no textual basis for that. And yeah. I cannot yeah. stress this enough. He mm-hmm. is asexual, or he's gay, or he is a combination of those two things because sure. they're not mutually exclusive. Right. Um, and for people who don't really know anything about it, you could be not interested in romantic relationships, but into sexual rela- relationships or not interested in sexual relationships, but interested in romantic relationships, or you can be somewhere on the asexual spectrum of, like, demisexual, gray sexual, where it's sort of not a black and white, never, always. Um, right, Just right. as a quick summation for, I know not everyone really knows queer terminology, yeah. but, like... No, thank you. Thank you for, for yeah. explaining that. It, it would be very... It's very possible to have a relationship with someone of your same gender while still being in in the asexual community. That's, they're not, they don't contradict each other. But yes. Sherlock Holmes is asexual or gay or a combo. But there's yeah. no evidence of him being interested in women. And if you think that, you are making stuff up. And I right. I think it's genuinely bad scholarship and it bothers me as someone who whose bread and butter yeah. is writing. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, absolutely. And it's like, it's like you were mentioning earlier when we were talking about a scandal in Bohemia. I think that's why in all the adaptations, everyone clings to Irene Adler because he refers to her as the woman, which just means it can mean whatever you want it to mean. But it certainly doesn't mean that, like, he's attracted to her or in love with her or anything like that. But I think that's like that's why she's such a she's such a prominent figure in adaptations even though she's only in that one story i don't know that's that's my my takeaway is people absolutely yeah yeah and i think another really frustrating thing that i see pop up in adaptations that where it's kind of like please i'm begging you to read a scandal in bohemia with like any critical thinking skills whatsoever is that sherlock holmes it's like mentioned in the second novel, um, The Sign of the Four, that Holmes isn't intre- like just doesn't have an appreciation of women, which like again with oblivious Watson, it's right. <laughs> Watson's yeah. like, hey, isn't Mary Morstan like just the most amazing girl ever? And Holmes is like, please stop talking about this. <laughs> <laughs> and Watson takes that to mean that Holmes has a problem with like women as a whole, and it's like, no, he just doesn't want you to move out. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Either just because he's lonely or because he's in love with you, like. But like, either way, he has a yeah. he has a motive for not appreciating Mary Morrison. But like, right. So there's the two novels, and then a scandal of Bohemia. And the at the end of the scandal of Bohemia, Watson writes like after that incident, like Holmes went into that story as a sexist, and after that, I haven't heard him make comments about women's intelligence since. So. It's very frustrating when a lot of adaptations are like, ah, yes, yes. I remember in the beginning of that story, it said that Sherlock Holmes uh, (laughs) had sexist views. And then they just ignore the fact that those stop. (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) They'll just have him be sexist and they'll be like, well, that's part of his character. And it's like, yes, it's a part of his character that he outgrows in a a time frame that we have available to us. Right. Um, what I'm getting at is um, there are lots of insecure straight men out there uh, who yeah. think that Sherlock Holmes belongs to them and he doesn't. That's uh, that's yeah. just where we're at. Uh, <laughs> yep. I love that. I love that. And I, and I think the more people who say that 
as you as you have. It's uh, it it it's so clearly obvious to me, but I can I can see how, you know, these very fragile straight white men just can't deal with it. Just can't deal with the fact that he's not theirs. That a that a brilliant, you know, sort of eccentric genius can't doesn't belong to them. I mean, what a concept. What a concept. Obviously, you know, the books don't make this text, though I think it is also worth noting that the books don't make this text because it would have been literally illegal. (laughs) Right, right. Like, I, I, sometimes people are like, if uh, Arthur Conan Doyle wanted them to be in a relationship, he would have, uh, he would have had them kiss. And it's like, right. And you know that he would have gone to jail if he did that. So I think that, right. uh, (laughs) I don't really think that that's a fair thing to say. Arthur Conan Doyle in real life had friends who went to jail for that. He right. knew. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm uh yeah, I'm I get up on this rant because it, it is one of the things that drives me most crazy. Because I, I love adaptations oh, I understand. of the work. And it's oh it's so disappointing that there are no adaptations that have Sherlock Holmes canonically identify as asexual mm-hmm. or or gay, or again, some sort of combination of those. And right. like, even if it took place in a time frame, in like a time period where those that language wasn't available, like a version of it. Sure. The the same way that varies in a Game of Thrones is mm-hmm. con- is confirmed as asexual, even though he's not asexual, isn't like the term. Right. Or or Loris and Renly are confirmed as homosexual, even though obviously like. Those aren't the woods. Uh, right, right. You can yes. do that even if it's not a modern day setting. Yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. They're always so coy about it. It drives me crazy. <laughs> I know. I know. It, Maybe. You're, yeah. Anything written after the 80s, I think, doesn't have an excuse. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> doesn't have. Yeah. No, I, I agree. What I love about Holmes and Watson is just like, they just like each other. Like, I think yeah. at the end of the day, that's what's so great. And I think... um you know, like, that's what's great about watching sitcoms or rom-coms or you know, sequels to action movies or whatever. Right. Is like, people like to see characters they like enjoying each other's company and getting along and having yeah. a good time. It yeah. feels good. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and I, I definitely think that, like, there has been sort of this, you know, gritty, edgy period in media mm-hmm. that, like, Obviously, there was always there's always been positive stuff you can watch, but I think that there was sort of the thing that was in vogue were like difficult people who hate each other, <laughs> right? And so I I find Holmes and Watson like a very nice antidote to when I feel like that media is sort of overwhelmed by that because um, you know they they don't have like a perfect friendship they there are ups and downs they they disagree about stuff and there's you know uh there's that whole faking his death thing (laughs) yep yep yeah that's a that's a hard one to get over for sure (laughs) i'd be pretty mad at my best friend if she faked her own death and didn't tell me about it yep yeah (laughs) it's it's just plain rude yeah yeah super rude come on (laughs) uh but like in general, you know, they meet when they're 30 or, or almost 30. Yeah. Um, there's no definitive ages. And then right. they're friends at least until their 60s um, where World War One happens. And other Conan Doyle tries to imply that they die in World War One, But then he 
has them both write and publish books in the 20s, so Uh-oh. I bet they're alive then. Uh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he tried so hard. But, like, yeah, it's, they are through thick and thin. They are, they are friends through all of it, and I think, um... Yeah. There is also quite a lot of evidence for them being more than friends because of, uh, one, the way that they are quite jealous of the other giving mm-hmm. attention to other people mm-hmm. and the way that they talk about each other. Um, I mentioned before that Holmes sort of feels competitive with Watson's wife, which happens a right. lot also after the marriage. Right. And I mentioned also, I mentioned in general terms because it is in general terms that Watson is very um, equal opportunity with uh, being a horn dog, but he spends he spends so much time describing Holmes's long, sensitive fingers in a way that yeah. he need not do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no one's no one's asking him. No one's like, yeah. hey, and just once, could you clarify the state of what Holmes's hands are doing at the moment? And he's no, he's unpromptedly, yeah, just like look at how sensitive and long and nice and those fingers are just no right reason. no one's bringing it up yeah um, <laughs> it's definitely you can you can kind of you can absolutely read these stories as a romance like yes watson yeah. does get married um but very soon like it's it's clear in the stories when he's married that they're like both really really miss each other yeah one of the stories uh boscombe valley mystery um mm-hmm. Holmes, uh, you know, it opens with Watson having breakfast with his wife and Holmes tel- sends a telegram asking like, hey, do you want to like come to the country for a few days? And uh, Watson's like, uh, I don't know. And his his wife says like, oh, no, no, you should go. You have been looking a little pale lately. I think uh, this change would do you good. And you've always so interested in Mr. Sherlock Holmes's cases. <laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> his wife is like, please, you are bumming me out. Please yeah. <laughs> like the next paragraph, it you know it describes how Watson like rushed to the station and he gets there, and when he arrives, he sees that Holmes is pacing up and down the platform because he's not he doesn't know that Watson has decided to come. That right, you can see in these subtle moments how much they're just chomping at the bits to move back in with each other. Right. Even when Watson is is happily married and, you know, no no disrespect to Mrs. Watson for me, uh, uh, after her untimely off-screen death, which I kind of side-eye Arthur Conan Doyle about. Right, because, right. Because um, a, a little bit about him, he, uh, he was married to a woman, and then he met a woman that he would rather be married to, and then he just waited for his first wife to die, which feels... <laughs> Like a very, very British way of resolving a conflict. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, it would be rude if I divorced her. I should just very obviously continue to be in love with someone else if she dies. <laughs> right, right. Uh, I don't know how much of that seeps into the novels. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I can see that. I can see that. Yeah. So that, that is something what's like Arthur Conan Doyle's real life subtext, real life uh, perspective. Uh, has led to him writing a lot of stories where people marry the wrong person and Sherlock Holmes sort of helps them get out of it. Mm, It's just that his real-life opinion on, you know, sometimes you marry someone by mistake and you should get out of it, um, really 
influences the subtext of the stories. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, definitely, definitely. I was just gonna say, I think that no matter no matter what you read into in uh, in Holmes and Watson's relationship, and I think you're right, there is opportunity to read into it a little bit deeper than maybe everybody does, but. Uh, I think no matter what, like like you said, like seeing seeing genuine affection and intimacy in a way between these two men is really refreshing and and just very sweet and satisfying, and is not necessarily something that you get a whole lot of in media these days. Yeah, it's um, you can imagine anything is going on off screen but what's so great is that the stuff that is on the page is just about two people who like each other and care about each other and they don't always get along and they always see you know get through it and are end up happy right for the other person which is just uh just good vibes in my opinion absolutely and i think that's like that is the thing that sets sherlock holmes apart and that is the thing that's so enduring about the stories because Watson is the narrator of the stories. Um, and Watson, like, very much, he's he's very shy, he's very humble. He tries to sort of take himself out of the stories and, like, not give too much away because he's fully focused on Holmes, which is, again, right. you can read that into the subtext as well. But, right. But, yeah, t- taken, taken at face value, just uh, it's a friendship, um, which is totally fair and supported in the text. Um, Watson is narrating about Holmes, and Holmes is giving Watson... And Watson only all of this special treatment. He asks Watson for advice. He talks through cases with him. They share secret jokes. He, he trusts Watson, you know, the vulnerable moments that only Watson sees. It talks, uh, just, there's a lot of them having this, you see that movie Frances Ha where she sort of talks about like what she wants is just having someone who you share this secret space with. <laughs> I still haven't seen it. I need to see it. I know. Well, yeah, if, if you haven't seen it, um... Uh, you know, it's, I liked it. I know people hated it. I know this isn't a Francis Hall podcast, but <laughs> yeah, she describes sort of what she's looking for in a relationship or in life as, you know, like having somebody who can see them across the room and though you share this secret world. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you think that she's talking about a love interest, but she's really ta- saying that about her best friend. Mm. And that's very much the relationship they have is they have this this secret world between them and they go on these yeah. adventures and they share their whole lives together. And I, and what's so great about the writing is that when you read it, because Watson's narrating, you feel like you have that relationship with Sherlock Holmes. It puts right. you in that position of Holmes giving you a sly little smile or, you know, patting you on the arm or being like, Oh no, great work picking on that picking up on that clue. And right. it's, so Holmes is like one this untouchable character in many ways, but he's also if you're reading them, he's your best friend. Right. Uh, <laughs> right. And I think that's sort of why so many people they fall in love with him or they mm-hmm. become obsessed with him or they want to, you know, be friends with him and whatever your relationship is to that character, it's filtered through the way he treats Watson and thus the way he treats us. And I think that's why it's the most like 
one of the absolutely most successful detective stories is because like, yes, those mysteries, but there's also this sweet, sweet secret floating that's going on. And I, yeah. again, you can float with your friends. So it's not mutually exclusive. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. No, I think that's that's beautiful. And again, like going back to the insight of or, or you know, your your insight that, you know, if you if you take these books just as they are, you know, at at the very least, they're fun detective novels with great characters. But if you're paying attention, there's so much more going on on a deeper level narratively. And that's so cool. And it's and it is why I think they they are so compelling and have endured and captured the hearts of so many people. Yeah. And I think when an adaptation is successful and when it isn't, I think really relates to how much they understand that relationship that the audience is expecting to have with Holmes. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, and that sort of that sort of leads me to the the next thing that I wanted to talk about, um, which is which is the adaptations of of Sherlock Holmes. And um, and I kind of wanted to get your take on which ones you you really like, which ones you don't like, or what you like or don't like about about certain. I mean, I know there's a ton, so we could you know we could talk about yeah it. yeah yeah just could, just like highlights. <laughs> yeah yeah, just so just so you know, I am I'm pretty basic. I have seen, oh my gosh, I can't remember the actors, um, but the ones that were made like in the in the was it the fifties. Weren't there Basil Rathbone? Yes. The black and white movies. Yeah, the black and white movies. I, I I watched those when I was a kid, um, or I watched some of them when I was a kid, but I haven't seen them anytime recently. Um, I I love House, and I didn't know until a couple <laughs> weeks ago that it could be it could be a, a loose adaptation of Sherlock Holmes. But now that makes total sense. Um, so you're more of an expert than you even realize. See, <laughs> see, um, I have seen Sherlock. I have very mixed feelings about Sherlock, the the BBC. I have very strong, firm feelings. Yeah, I, I I got the sense that you you might, and I'm I I have some strong feelings about it where we we probably align, and um and then I've seen the the Robert Downey Jr. movies, which I think have a lot in them that are really fun, even if they're not maybe the most faithful adaptations. Um, they're weirdly accurate. They're <laughs> yeah. Well, well, actually, because because I was way more than you'd think. <laughs> yeah, I was watching them the other night while I was like doing some stuff, and and my husband was watching them with me. Winston was watching them, and he was like going down a rabbit hole about Sherlock Holmes, like on Wikipedia <laughs> about about yeah. them, and he was like, "This is weirdly like this is actually like that's text like from the book," and like and I was like, yeah. "Oh yeah, cool." Um, so that so that made me feel good because I do like those movies, um, and then I've seen a little bit of Elementary. I've got it's one of those shows that I've got to like sit down and watch it all, but I've seen like bits and pieces of it, and I think I think that's most of what I've seen. Yeah, I mean, there's there's so much of it because it's also like yeah. you have those like direct adaptations like um, the Jeremy Brett series in the eighties mm-hmm. and. Um, which is just very much straight. They're doing the canon as close as they can. Um, right. And then you have, you know, adaptations like Elementary and Sherlock, which are very obviously in te- like advertised as Sherlock Holmes, but with a lot of changes for the modern day. Right. And then you have stuff like 
you know, you get Wishbone, you get the great mouse detective. Oh, I forgot about Sherlock Wishbone. In the twenty-second <laughs> century, you get you get yeah. Psych. You get very That's arguably right. Castle is a Sherlock oh, Holmes adaptation. Yeah, yeah, which I could see that too. Interesting because it's a it's a male Watson with a female uh, Holmes, but then of course the frustrating thing about Castle is that um, they then focus all their time on the guy, which right. is like <laughs> right, of course. Um. um very Castle's loose. another one that I've seen a little bit of, but haven't seen the whole thing. Yeah. And I don't even know if that's intentional. It's just, it's like, the archetype of Holmes and Watson is so strong. It's right. one of the, I mean, it's definitely one of the most iconic duos uh, ever, which is oh yeah, very funny. Because I think Sherlock Holmes is in many ways, like, the basis of so many, like, lone wolf brooding solitary heroes and, like, I don't want to make too sweeping a statement about that because, like, of course, you know, that idea of detectives also very much comes from noir, which is right. very different. Uh, and I don't want to, like, you know, I'm not going to shit talk Raymond Chandler on here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have time to get into the whole noir detective uh, genre. That's that's but, like, next episode. <laughs> I, I think there was, like, the idea of the troubled lone wolf genius comes from Sherlock Holmes and simultaneously... Sherlock Holmes is part of the most, one of, like, the most iconic duos in literature. Right. Like, if you ask someone to name the best duos in literature, they would probably struggle to come up with, like, three more. Yeah. <laughs> Holmes and Watson are, like, really thinking about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, 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 I definitely agree. It might just be because we're, we've been talking about it and my brain is drawing a blank. But right now I can't think of anything else. Right now, may, uh, yeah, may besides like, Huckleberry Finn and uh, Tom Sawyer, there's there's one that came yeah. that came to mind, but right. So like you know, X Files is kind of a Holmes Watson dynamic, even though obviously you know like there's just it's you know right. sensible medical person eccentric out there beliefs guy. Right. Like it's like very rough, but I think sort of it's a very iconic. Thing that has been adapted a lot so like yeah. it's the influence of Sherlock Holmes is everywhere in media totally that was that was a long way to say it's been adapted a lot yeah <laughs> no but but no but that's a really good point because I I hadn't really thought about it in necessarily those terms of like the those archetypes um being so prevalent in so much of media and it really coming from Holmes and Watson so I just I just have to ask because let's let's dive right into it. What what yes. are your feelings about Sherlock? <laughs> um, if you would like to know my feelings on Sherlock, you can watch uh, this great two hour video essay on YouTube. Yes, by uh, the video essayist uh, H Bomber guy. Mm -hmm. um, that is his username. That's not like his sure. Name's yeah, name. sure. Uh <laughs> Sure. <laughs> um, which I uh, contributed and helped uh, write and edit, which is my main contribution to that video is just me going off on the boomerang scene uh, in Sherlock. It would, if you've seen it, you know there is a boomerang-related death. Yep. And I think it was kind of the moment that broke me spiritually. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I have, I have an infinite amount of stuff to say. I will say something that is lightly addressed in the video um mm -hmm. because the video does get into like how much queer baiting that show does yeah which is, um dead like especially it's very negatively portrayed queer baiting like it's always a joke in the show 
Um, I have a lot of feelings about Stephen Moffat generally. Yeah. <laughs> which uh, we don't, as John Mulaney says, we don't have time to unpack all of that. But, um, but I, I mean, I, I don't necessarily like hate the show. But I remember when it came out and, it, and just, like, so many people were, like, gushing about it. I saw it and I was like, it's okay. Like, <laughs> like there are, there are things. I, I think there are things of value in it. I like Martin Freeman a lot as Watson. Um, but that's my best or my biggest, like, positive feeling about it. I do have to say, and I know this is really unpopular i detest andrew scott i think his name andrew scott as moriarty yeah, he's he's so bad in that I like hate i hate it i hate he, it he's just talking at different volumes that's not acting that's just talking at different volumes no yeah <laughs> and it it drives me crazy when people are like oh my god he's the most amazing actor i'm like no he's not <laughs> yeah it's uh yeah, here's the thing is like I watched season one and I liked it. And it wasn't until I rewatched it with a friend. Uh yeah, we, we spent a day we're like, oh, let's have a nice day in. We'll do puzzles. We'll rewatch Sherlock season one. Yeah. That was the only thing out yet. And we did that. And then like at the end of it, we like looked at each other and we're like, So is this show terrible? Oh uh, yeah. Is that, what happened? <laughs> did we just not like now that we know what happens? And there's no surprise. Is this just yeah. awful? <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> it's it's very much a, a smoke and mirror show. Yeah. Like, whether you like it or not, I think you can acknowledge it. It's very much a show that's built around wrapping you up in excitement and sort of uh, sleight of hand. Yeah. And and you can be super into that. And there's definitely stuff where I've seen where I, you know, I'm into it. Lots of lots of lots of great movies. Alfred Hitchcock talks about lists about like how like. It's okay if you think of a plot hole the next day as long as you're not thinking about it in the theater. So, like, I get it. For some people, that's a thing. It's just very much this adaptation doesn't do it for me. Yeah, and something that I find, like, so frustrating about it is that, yeah, with the queer baiting, like, they very much treat the idea that Holmes and Watson could be a couple as a joke, which I find... The, that it's a little bit in the Robert Downey Jr. movies. Like, I mean, like, okay, it, it's there's a lot of jokes about it in the Robert Downey Jr. movies, but like yeah. most of them are very lighthearted and like maybe, which can right. also be incredibly condescending to queer people. And I'm not like condoning it, but sure. it's, it's definitely not like, you know, fuck you if you think this. Right. Um, and then House also is very of its time and has. Yeah. jokes at the expense of gay people and like ooh, what if they and i you know definitely sherlock isn't the only one to do that but i think it's just the sheer volume of jokes they have at the expense that feel very putting it down yeah and it's it's very self-conscious about the mm. affection between those two men and their relationship in a way that the original stories which again were published when it was illegal yeah. to <laughs> Even, like, you know, it seemed like maybe you had something going on with the guy. Like, the during the course of the novels being published, the Oscar Wilde trials happened, and that was usually right. the only I've done again in, like, history or whatever. But, like, right. it was a very bad time if you were queer. Um, and the 
books themselves are very unselfconscious about the affection right. between them. It's they're always, you know, they're they're going on vacations and they are not getting separate hotel rooms. Or if they right. there's a or there's a story where they do get a separate hotel room and Holmes just walks into Watson's, puts a map down, and he's like, "Hey, we're going to go over this," and it's like very much. You know, you if they did that on Sherlock, they would make jokes about like, oh, but if someone saw you come in here late at night and you lay and you know you get seen leaving, and the sh- the books right. don't care about that stuff. The books have them always say how much they like each other, walk on yeah. up. It's just it's the self consciousness of like, oh, it would be so bad if someone thought that is purely an invention of Sherlock, and it's right. quite weird to add that in the 2000s to a series that's from the turn of the century like i think it's right it was an intentional choice and i don't it makes me very uncomfortable to watch it. <laughs> yeah no that's that's incredibly valid i've i think i've only seen i i think i've seen some of the sec the of the first season a couple times um but the rest of it i've only seen once i remember hate or it's possible I ha- I'm not caught up on it whatever episode was the last episode I watched I thought was absolute trash I hated it <laughs> so much but um but yeah I think I, I I I I totally agree with you and I if if I subject myself to going back and watching it again I'm sure I will be just even more even more aware and angry about it but I'm I'm glad to hear you say that because I I just from kind of like a a narrative and acting perspective really get frustrated when people idolize certain actors or writers and creators. And I feel like especially at that time, like that was the case with Benedict Cumberbatch. Since then, it's been with Andrew Scott. And I'm like, nothing against Benedict Cumberbatch. I think he's a very good actor, Um, but he's not like the only good actor in the world. Yeah, look, Martin Freeman's carrying that show, and I think we can all admit I, 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 I'm there with you. I think Martin Freeman is, like, the unsung hero of everything he's in. But anyhow, anyhow. Um, so I'm glad to hear you say that. That did just make me think of, like, one, one last thing to tie into the wine world, which makes me sound... I, I feel like it's going to make me sound kind of like a jerk but um (laughs) the way the way I feel about Sherlock or like the way you were talking about your experience with Sherlock is how I remember my experience of first getting into wine um and I specifically remember the wine Zinfandel which nothing against Zinfandels there are very good ones out there but it's a very good like entry wine I think um, because it's very, it's very fruity. It's usually pretty simple. There's not a lot going on with it necessarily, but it's very quaffable. Um, and when I was first getting into wine, like when I would go out and like order a wine at a wine bar or a restaurant, I'd be like, I'll have a Zinfandel. And I was like, I think I'm so classy and awesome. And then since then, I've come to really dislike most Zinfandel. Because I, I think it's just because my palate has changed. Again, it's not necessarily anything against Zinfandel itself. But now I'm like, Zinfandel is one of the last things I will choose to drink. <laughs> just That's more just like your, your own palate and taste changing. But I feel like that's something like often with media too. When you watch something and at first you're like, oh, this is fun. This is cool. This really grabs me. And then you go back and revisit it after growing up experiencing other media 
gaining a little bit more critical consciousness and you're like, <laughs> oh, actually, this is not what I like. This is not good. <laughs> anyway, that might be a little bit of a stretch, but. That's- no, I mean, I, I see that because on, on some level, like probably if you are at a bar and someone next to you orders a Zinfandel, you probably do have a lot of similar taste to them. Yeah. Because it means that they are interested in the same concepts as you. But exactly. But you appreciate them quite differently. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I'm like, I like where you're going, but let me help you out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because I sort of, you know, we both sort of took Sherlock down a peg. I would like yeah. to um, recommend to any fans of that series who maybe are kind of like, well, then maybe we have nothing. Um, Miss Sherlock, the uh, Japanese series. It's Ooh. available on HBO Max. Um, if you are in America, at least, it's available on HBO Max. Um, it's an adaptation of Sherlock Holmes that takes place in the modern day. And um, it has a female Holmes and Watson. And it is tonally very similar to BBC Sherlock. It's very it's very campy, it's over the top, it brings in very elaborate spy nonsense for no reason. Yeah. It's but it's like I feel and this might even honestly be kind of a translation thing of me coming in as an American watching a Japanese series, but I felt like it was had this added amount of camp that made the stuff that I found kind of um frustrating and obnoxious in the BBC Sherlock a lot more fun and palatable to me because I didn't feel like it was trying as hard to seem you know like to outsmart me and that maybe that campiness again is just kind of a cultural translation thing but uh, I thought it was just like a super fun super quick series very big and out there and uh it's also just a really great to see a woman be Sherlock Holmes yeah. and uh, just walk around in these gorgeous heels and be mean to cops. Yeah, and tell men to shut up. It's so great. It's so fun. Uh, uh, I I hadn't heard of this. I'm really excited to watch it. Yeah, there is. Unfortunately, there is only one series because mm-hmm. the uh, lead very tragically died. Oh no! And that is a it's. Very sad and it broke my heart to hear, but Ugh. I think the the one series uh, is a full story and I, I would really recommend that. And then um, great off of that, of course, uh, there's the uh, Enola Holmes movie on mm, Netflix, mm-hmm. um, which is an, another female Holmes, though this time not a Sherlock Holmes, a Enola Holmes. Yes. Is, uh, Sherlock and Mycroft's little sister. Um, I've read most of the books and they're some of them are good and some of them aren't uh-huh if, uh if you hit me up on twitter if yeah you recommendations um they're all very quick reads and they're fun because they're for children um but i the movie is a blast i would have cut 30 minutes from it personally, yeah i thought it was but, like yeah <laughs> no i'm sorry i didn't mean to cut you off i thought i really enjoyed it too i thought it was a little long but I I love Millie Bobby Brown. As I've said, I I want to be more like her when I grow up. Um, and I we were just talking about Henry Cavill um, and all the fake Henry Cavill accounts that are following me on Instagram. Um, I didn't realize it would be related. Uh, I'm not sure how I feel about him as Sherlock Holmes. I I kind of want to give him more of a chance to like do something interesting 
because he didn't he didn't do a whole lot in this one. Yeah, there's there's no reason they should have cast him. Yeah, like, I I loved it just because he was so miscast. Yeah, yeah, like he's like he's the anti bursting out of all of those Victorian. Vests. I know. <laughs> he's like the anti Sherlock Holmes type. I feel like I could see him. I, I could see him as Watson potentially, <laughs> but anyway, maybe maybe they'll make another one and he'll get a chance to like show some acting chops that we haven't seen yet but i love henry cavill by the way i stand henry cavill but um (laughs) uh yeah not to get controversial but i truly feel like there i don't really think there are any actors who it is appropriate to play superman and sherlock holmes yeah i feel like there's just the the vibes are off you know they're yeah, it can be one or the other, but the the vibes are off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you you got to be a really, really super charismatic, very versatile actor to 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 do that. And and nothing against Henry Cavill, I because I don't think many people at all could do that. But uh, but I think he works better as Superman. Yeah, <laughs> that's my hot yeah, take. It's, <laughs> he doesn't make sense as Sherlock Holmes, but like I think he has also like he's comically older than Millie Bobby Brown in that. Right. Like, it, Sherlock is supposed to be like twenty years older than her, but it's they just look comically differently. Yeah, aged. yeah. Um, but I do think they have a him and Millie Bobby Brown. I think had a good family chemistry, and yeah. maybe that's why they went with him. Um, also, you know, it's Netflix and they have The Witcher, but like, yeah. it's, there was a lot of talk about it. I think it's one of those things that's, you know, it's so crazy. It might just work where it's like, sure, let's do this. Let's have some fun. Why not? It Why doesn't not? matter. Sherlock Holmes has been a dog in at least two TV adaptations. Who cares? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and also, and also I think part of the point is too that the Enola Holmes movie is not about Sherlock. It's about exactly. it's about her. She is Sherlock in this in this adaptation. More yeah. not not precisely, but she is more of the Sherlock character. Yeah, and um, that brings me to uh, Elementary, which I want to shout out. Mm-hmm. Um, elementary, and then House does this as well. I my my little TV obsessed joke with Elementary, which is not really a joke, <laughs> is that it's it's not a Sherlock Holmes adaptation. It's a House MD. Uh, oh, nice. Nice. Uh, I see what you I did think there. Were, yeah, I think some writers overlapped, but definitely, like, mm-hmm. just vibes-wise, uh, it felt very similar, mm-hmm. uh, especially with, like, those are the two adaptations I've seen really deal with Holmes's drug problem mm-hmm. as an addiction problem that he needs help with. Right. And uh, what I like about those two adaptations and elementary is, like, Elementary is a lot more overt about this, but that in the stories, Sherlock Holmes, he's a genius and he's amazing and et cetera, et cetera. He's the hero, but like he truly believes that people can learn his methods and that all he is doing is applying basic common sense and logic to situations. And the thing that people are doing wrong isn't necessarily that they're stupid, but that they're, they let their preconceived notions and expectations get in the way. Like, right why Watson is such a good uh, partner with him is that Watson comes comes at stuff as a writer, so he kind of is only interested in 
you know, the atmosphere of a place or the what's interesting with people's characters. And he's he sort of he uses these broad strokes, which I think a lot of uh, writers or people who enjoy a good story do as well, where we kind of fit stuff into a narrative. And Holmes is very much against against that. He's very much like uh, he won't tell people his theories because he doesn't want them to go into situations expecting something in particular right and elementary is um an adaptation where holmes teaches watson how to be a detective and um this version of watson who is uh joan watson played by lucy Liu, who is fantastic love her over the course of the seven seasons she becomes as good of a detective Mm -hmm. as he is like Mm -hmm. he will send her on a case truly trust that she will find whatever he would find in that room. Yeah. Um, and he has other apprentices. And then House MD has that to an extent because um, House has, um, you know, the medical fellows. Right. Uh, Cameron, Foreman, and Chase in season one. Uh, and then other fellows as the show rotates. Yeah. Um, and it's also about kind of like, yes, House is the special genius and he has a special brain and he is the best at what he does. But it is teachable. It is something that if you are committed to learning, you can learn. And I think that's such a valuable aspect. And I yeah. think it's um, some adaptations do kind of try to just be like, he's just special. And I get right. that. It's an easy shorthand. You know, if you have a two hour movie, you know, mm-hmm. the great mouse detective doesn't really have time to get into how he's doing right. everything. Right, yeah. <laughs> um, but I, off of Enola Holmes, um, who, I think it's it's important to know that like the spirit of Sherlock Holmes is learning, and I think that's also why reading the stories is satisfying. Is mm-hmm. because they're very easy reads. You know, they're not super challenging mentally, but you do leave them feeling as if you're smarter, or you've learned something, or at, or you could adapt and see the world differently. Right. Yeah. No, that's great. That's 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 beautiful, and that feels like kind of a nice a nice note to end on. Oh, you never told me what you were drinking. We never. Oh, <laughs> yes, yes. Okay, yeah. Uh, well, I'll tell you. I'm I'm drinking a Pique Poule, which is a a French white wine um, that I that I really like because it's very crisp and refreshing, and uh, and not very expensive. So it's been my like my quarantine white wine, um, and I feel like I feel like it's one that Sherlock would enjoy for sure. He, he loved a good drink, a good drink, yeah. a good smoke. Uh, yes, some other vices. <laughs> yep, <laughs> just one or two other vices. Yep, <laughs> one or two other vices. <laughs> yep. And what did what did you end up drinking? Um, okay, so I bought this beat originally because it has a really cool label where there's like this cool pirate lady on it. It's yeah. called Back from the Dead Red, which is Ooh. a dark red blend. Ooh, um, fun! I got it for sale at Bevmo. Nice, <laughs> nice. Yeah, good old, good old sales. Uh, <laughs> good old sales, gosh. <laughs> uh, and I thought it, I you had recommended me some wines um, specifically uh, that I that I and I got some, but I I wanted to do the back from the dead red for this because Sherlock Holmes, as I mentioned, comes back from the dead. It's it's uh, perfect. It's his move. Yes, it's so appropriate. There, are, yeah. There's more than one occasion where Sherlock Holmes is like, I'm gonna fake my death for attention. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my God, he's such a drama queen. <laughs> he's su- he's such a theater kid. Like he really heart, is. Which is the other thing is like 
a lot of a lot of adaptations they want to make him cool and like he rocks he's awesome but he's he's just a little nerd like at the yeah, end of the day totally he, he just wants to do his little science experiments and you know quote shakespeare and go to the yep. opera yep. and then sit back and have a smoke with his one friend <laughs> yeah <laughs> it sounds like the dream really Sounds like he's, yeah, he's living the life. <laughs> he is living his best life. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, that sounds perfect. That sounds like the perfect wine to pair with with Sherlock Holmes. So uh, before we before we sign off, I just want to make sure that we uh, we mentioned Arden at the beginning, but I want to make sure that we oh god yeah <laughs> get to plug uh, get to plug all your stuff. Um, so. If you want to say anything more about Arden, I've I've definitely talked about it before on the podcast, but people might need a little reminder. Uh, yes. So um, you might be thinking, uh, hey, that Sarah Gollum sure knows a lot about queer subtext and detective stories, and thus you might be interested in Arden, which is a fictional true crime podcast um, mm-hmm. with two seasons out, uh, two complete solved mysteries i promise that if you start the show (laughs) you will know what happens yes (laughs) and it is about a journalist who sets out to make a standard true crime show about uh cold cases who ends up teaming up with a detective who uh is like no we're gonna solve these cases uh, they are both uh, women, and they have a bit of a will they, won't they thing going on. They which, do. Uh, what is unbelievable is that I have uh, two co-creators, um, Christopher Dole, who has been on the show before, mm-hmm. and Emily Vanderwolf, who you might know if you've uh, read the AV Club or Vox or listened to some of her podcasts. Amazing. But they brought me on after they came up with the premise, so I was not the one who pitched... Hey, we should have someone who thinks about true crime as a story and someone who thinks about true crime as a case to solve and they should fall in love. Not me. Not my doing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just a, a pure coincidence. <laughs> um, but it is definitely, uh, I do think I bring a little bit of my Sherlock Holmes knowledge to the show. Uh <laughs> Absolutely. And I was going to say, there's maybe a bit of a of a Holmes and Watson vibe to Bia and Brenda. Not exactly, I would say. It's not, ex- but but there's definitely elements of that in there for sure. Oh, yeah. Bia and Brenda are a well, they won't, they post their friendship later. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah, love it. They, there was something going on between them on day one, and it took them like a season and a half to become friends. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love Arden so much. So I was so excited when you uh, when you wanted to come on pairing and talk about Sherlock Holmes. I was so excited that you let me because I was uh, one. I loved, as you can tell by the length of this episode, uh, I love talking about it. But I also um, I love wine and I know nothing about it. Yes. So I, yes. The show has been great. <laughs> great. That's the well, that's the whole idea. And my favorite my favorite episodes are definitely the ones where my guests uh, come up with the come up with the subject matter because that's always more fun um there's there's always more to talk about there uh is there anything else that you wanted to plug um we've i will definitely tell people follow you on twitter but i know there's other things you're involved with so uh yes i would also like to plug um my non-fiction podcast historical hookups Uh, you can find that at twitter at historical hooks 
Um, I co-host that with uh, other female comedians, and we Amazing. research the um, the scandalous, sexy times of historical figures. So, like, I love it. Our whole thing is a uh, we don't tell you about the history; we just tell you about the hookups. Uh, <laughs> so, if you're it's like, beautiful. Hey, this Sarah Gollum lady, uh, she knows a lot about what sex acts were legal in what years and what countries. <laughs> uh, that's why. <laughs> it's for science. Yeah, it's purely for the show. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and if people want to get more of your Sherlock Holmes thoughts, they should definitely follow you on Twitter. Which, oh yeah, I never, never stop tweeting about it. Yeah, yeah, it's it's amazing. Between that and your and your gorgeous cat Veronica, your your social media is on point. <laughs> oh yes, I'd also like to plug uh, my cat Veronica. Um, yeah, she doesn't have her own social media account. I just think that she's like a really great cat. Like like yeah. I've met a lot of cats and they're all great, but I think Veronica's like a, like a top one percent of cats. Top tier, <laughs> totally top tier. Top to your cat. <laughs> to, top to your cat. Amazing. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for coming. This was such a great conversation. Um, I, I, for one, am super excited to go read some of these stories for the first time, reread some of these, watch some of this media. Um, so thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. This was this was a delight. As you can imagine, this is all I want to do all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Hey, that's all we should do is uh, drink wine and talk about talk about the the art that we love. That's hell yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> hell yeah. Cheers. Jazz. Pairing was created, hosted, and produced by Emma Sherjarko, with music and audio recording by Winston Shaw and logo artwork by Darcy Zimmerman and Katie Huey. This episode was edited by Emma Sherjarko. Follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at Pairing Podcast to keep tabs on what we're up to. And feel free to send us any thoughts, questions, requests, and pairings of your own on our website, thepairingpodcast.com, via email at pairingpodcast at gmail.com, or on any social media platform. Come check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash pairingpodcast, where you can pledge as little as $1 a month and get access to exclusive content, customized pairings from me, live streams, and more. Also, check out our merch store on our website at thepairingpodcast.com slash merch. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts and sharing with your friends. Thank you so much for listening to Pairing, where you come for the stories and stay for the wine.